0: Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. The
1: following is the audio podcast of the Enhancing Clinical Practice Through Psychosocial Perspectives in the Management of Low Back Pain Symposium, recorded at APTA's Combined Sections Meeting on February 11, 2011, in New Orleans, Louisiana. The presenters are Dr. Chris Main and Dr. Stephen George, co-editors of PTJ's Special Issue on Psychologically Informed Practice, and two authors from that special issue, Dr. Julie Fritz, and to Dr. William Shaw.
2: My name is Marie Bement, and I'm representing the Pain Special Interest Group and in the orthopedic section. And I'd like to welcome you to Enhancing Clinical Practice Through Psychosocial Perspectives in the Management of Low Back Pain. Okay, so next up to introduce this special issue of the PTJ is Dan Riddle. He's the deputy editor of the Physical Therapy Journal.
0: Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you so much for coming at this uh, early and very t- testy hour for a lot of people And at the attending conference. It's always tricky to uh, expect folks to show up at 8 o'clock for a session, but I, I don't think you'll be disappointed with the content and quality of today's presentations. We at the Physical Therapy Journal are incredibly excited about this special issue that's going to be published most likely in May of 2011, and this issue that's dealing with psychological aspects of the care of patients with low back pain is, uh, I think, a long time coming. And our our speakers are going to address this issue. Um, I am very pleased and proud to announce our two co-editors of this particular special issue. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Chris Main, who is professor at, at Keele University in Manchester, England, and he's sitting immediately to my left, and uh, the, the other co-editor for this special issue is Dr. Steve George, who is Associate Professor and Assistant Chair at the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Gainesville. I'm going to turn the mic over to them, and they're going to begin the uh, session, and again, thank you so much for coming.
3: Thank you, Dan, and thank you everyone for coming. It is indeed a difficult time in the morning, although it's actually 2pm in the UK. Well, greetings from the UK. Um, it's always a pleasure to be invited to anything, and to be asked to come to New Orleans is a truly special treat. Kew University is in the middle of England, uh, sort of between Birmingham and Manchester, and it's the biggest rural campus uh, in the United Kingdom. And this is the primary care medical centre down here. Uh, where where I work. Reasons for producing a special issue, well there's increasing evidence that psychosocial factors are associated with outcome of physical therapy and there's been some evidence for efficacy of cognitive behavioral approaches to treatment and increasingly this has led us to focus on the development of psychologically oriented pain management and a particular impetus towards secondary prevention because as you will hear in the later later sessions this morning, um, we now know quite a lot about the sort of people uh, that are going to end up in difficulty. So there's an attractiveness of thinking in terms of an integrated biopsychosocial framework because of the potential for identifying those at risk of poor outcome. There's an opportunity to improve outcome of PT by addressing obstacles to recovery within clinical management. So the challenge really is to develop a new approach, to trying to integrate psychosocial and biomedical perspectives. These are the contents of the special issue, which uh, Dr. Riddle said is coming out um, in May, although maybe out electronically before then. And you can cast your eye down; you can see the sorted papers. Now we're only able today to present a selection and some of the flavour of what will be in the special issue. Um, that's the first half of them and then the second half are here. So um, the four of us uh, that are presenting have been asked to focus on particular aspects of it ranging from overall perspectives to some, methodo- uh, some methodology. So the structure of the symposium, first of all, Steve and I are presenting uh, on behalf of all authors of the paper and uh, Bill and uh, Julie Fritz, who will be here shortly, Uh, are joining us in this task. We've had to be selective, we can't talk about everything. But we tried to crystallize uh, this uh, session around five key themes within an overall framework. Unfortunately you've got to listen to me again next in terms of an overview of psychological processes and models. Then issues using psychological factors to predict outcome. Uh, Julie Fritz uh, will be joining us in a few minutes. Uh, Stephen George is then going to talk about early identification of risk factors and and talking a little bit about the sort of interventions uh, that that have been attempted and we get Bill Shaw to talk particularly about addressing occupational factors in PT practice and then uh, we'll go on to Stephen again talking about uh, integration of psychosocial principles into PT practice, with a particular emphasis on education, training and implementation, some of the real you know, challenges that I think we need to face if we're going to change the way clinical service is delivered. So the principal features, we're trying to suggest a new approach to PT. It is evolutionary rather than revolutionary, of course, and it developed from the biomedical model. And it really is focusing on a systematic rather than haphazard attention to psychosocial factors. We're trying to stick out a middle way between a narrow biomedical focus and full-blown CBT as found in the treatment of mental illness. But it's really derived from an evidence-based normal psychology of reactions to back pain. We're not talking about strange or weird people, of my good self. We're talking about uh, the normal psychology of how people react to pain and, and its limitations. So the concept of psychologically-informed practice offers, we would argue, a more effective patient-centered approach to clinical management. It's not psychotherapy, it's perhaps a sort of psychophysiotherapy if you like. you starting to be confused with psychocuropathy, which is opening your mouth and putting your foot in it. So the presenting authors, Julie Fritz uh, and Steve George are distinguished uh, physical therapists, both from a clinical and a research background. And all you need to do is Google either of them and you'll see what a tremendous contribution they've made to the profession. Bill Shaw equally has taught me everything that I know about occupational factors uh, and their importance in thinking about return to work and what goes on in the workplace. And then there's myself, and of course I'm really smart because I've got three even smarter people uh, following me in, in this symposium. Acknowledgements. PTG and editorial board for accepting our proposal for a special issue it was floated as a very tentative idea and we've been absolutely delighted in the enthusiasm and support that we've received so Becky Craig, Dan Riddle, Jan Reynolds, encouragement wisdom, forbearance and all the special issue authors of course whom the four presenters here were trying to do our best to represent what they've they've given us and obviously we have to acknowledge our many colleagues who've stimulated our little grey cells uh, over many years my personal thanks above all to Steve and George, not only for a massive amount of work on this issue, but for his focus, professionalism, and unfailing good humour. It would not have been possible to do this without Steve. So, thank you for coming to the symposium. And now I'm going to introduce myself to give the next talk. Okay. Well, I'm going to start the session really by talking about psychosocial processes and models. This is a little bit of background because uh, not all physical therapists have come across uh, some of the jargon uh, that you find in the literature, so we're going to take you through some of the perspectives that you commonly find. We'll st- I'll start talking about psychological influences on the experience of pain, functional disability in response to treatment. I'll talk about the nature of psychological processes and particularly how cognitions, emotions and pain behaviour link up together. And then following the, uh, the chapter, uh, 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 Steve Linton and Bill Shaw, I'll be talking about five common models uh, that you'll find in the literature which have tried to address the issue of how people respond to pain and how disability develops. So we're really talking about development of a patient-centred approach and I'll finish off just with giving you a taste of some guiding principles that have been outlined at the end of the chapter although I don't have time to go into all the details and solutions that are presented. You'll have to wait for that coming online in a few weeks. And this presentation will finish by talking a little bit about the concept of yellow flags, which a number of us developed some years ago, Uh, how we got involved in looking at psychosocial factors, um, where the research started, uh, and where it sort of ended up, if you will. So to begin then, psychological influences on pain disability and response to treatment. Well, the experience of pain is shaped by a host of psychological factors related to physiological processes and importantly shaped by previous experience. It has important survival value. The psychological factors impact on every aspect of the pain experience and on the development of pain-associated limitations. So there are attractive potential targets in the context of secondary prevention. And PTs, of course, are aware of the potential importance of such factors. But typically, they don't distinguish evidence-based from non-evidence-based factors. And there's a lack of guidelines on how such factors should or can be integrated to practice. And I guess we're hoping that this symposium and this special issue uh, will be a little bit of a kick start uh, on this process. I'm just thinking a little bit about the sort of the overall framework. When we think about noxious stimulus. Um, uh, uh, we become aware of it. Uh, we attend to it. We interpret it, and we cope with it in some sort of ways. And this leads to pain behaviour of various sorts, which in turn becomes influenced by its uh, consequences and the situation. So we've really got a system where pain uh, uh, becomes a centre of attention, where it leads us to do things, and as a result of these things we do, we cope uh, cope better or worse with pain itself, and may develop unnecessary and preventable levels of pain disability. What about psychological processes? Well, first of all, we can think of them as a sequence of events. It's perhaps helpful to view them as a series of linked processes, comprising the initial awareness of pain, the cognitive processes, beliefs, its appraisal, its interpretation, what does it mean? And how does it lead to the response to pain, the pain behaviour that we see? But we can also think about them as consisting of interlocking mechanisms. Attention to pain may be linked to fear, anxiety, vigilance, and the influence of memory. If you've had a very bad pain experience in the past, uh, if you've really you know, been laid up with your back, Uh, If it occurs again in the future, or you start to get stimulated, you begin to worry that things are going to be as they were. So the influence of memory is very important. But particularly, we're interested in the cognitive interpretation, the beliefs, attitudes. You all heard about the difference between hurting and harming. And people may misunderstand the value of rest. Expectations about the course of pain and outcome of treatment we know are predictive of both the development of persistent pain and the development of higher levels of pain associated limitations. And we can think in terms of a number of cognitive sets, ways that people think both helpful and unhelpful, uh, such as catastrophizing and worrying about unnecessarily and inappropriately about ending up in a wheelchair. And of course the influence of emotions which are predictive of the pain response and outcome. Emotions and mood, we can think about them as central amplifiers to the pain experience. And typically, when we try to understand patients that come to see us in the clinic... Um, we're persuaded to ask a lot about the details of the characteristics of the pain itself, the pain pattern, uh, and and how people are coping with the pain, and we may fail to pick up some very real concerns and anxieties, which is actually driving what they do. We've gone a long way from Descartes and his ideas about pain, uh, where it was assumed that the brain was a kind of passive relay station, we now know that the brain is very active, and indeed from the point of nociception onwards, a whole cascade of events follow, and this is a slide uh, lent to me by uh, one of my colleagues, Irene Tracy in England, who's done some wonderful uh, functional MRI work, and uh, on this slide she really depicts how uh, the nociceptive input comes in through the fibres and is then modulated um, in the brain. And all sorts of things happen which lead ultimately to the pain experience. We can think of the cognitive sets, the context in terms of beliefs, expectations. We can think of the influence of mood. And of course, we're increasingly understanding that it's doesn't occur in the abstract, there's actually physiological and biochemical processes underlying this. Take home message the brain is active, not passive. The experience of back pain cannot be fully understood without including central mechanisms. Cognitive and emotional factors are central to this process, as are their effects on behaviour. And since psychological and behavioural factors are accessible, this is really good news. It offers us new possibilities for treatment and prevention. Well, in terms of psychological processes further, we can think of them as culminating in a behavioural response. And in a way, pain behaviour can be thought of as the public face of pain. It's partly a biological response, escape, but it may generalise through conditioning to other contextual factors. Its influence also by its consequences, becoming more or less likely in the future, depending on what's happened in the past. And we have the behavioural paradox. We may not be aware of some of these influences on our pain behaviour, but learning paradigms produce tremendous opportunities for change. What about this behavioural legacy? Well, I do have to acknowledge the grandfather of all pain behaviour, Bill Fordyce, who passed away about 15 months ago. He really changed the way we think by getting us to move and think not only about pathology and disease and structure, but actually to pain behaviour itself and the influences on it. So we owe him a considerable debt. What can we do? Man who stands on the hill with mouth open will wait a long time for a roast duck to drop in. There's no point in just waiting to see what happens, we've got to take some action. What about chronic low back pain? Well, we've got acute pain, nociceptive pain, and it can end up in chronic pain, chronic low back pain, fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain, all different mechanisms obviously. We're really interested in what happens between the acute pain and the chronic pain stage. And uh, really where psychologically informed reactivation and practice sits is in this middle, is in this middle ground. So there have been a number of models uh, that have been put together and are detailed in the chapter uh, for the development of persisting pain problems. The fear avoidance model, stress diathesis model. You don't want to say that when you've had too much to drink the night before. The self-efficacy model, acceptance and commitment model, and misdirected problem solving. I think that's the story of my life. What about fear avoidance then? The fear avoidance theory has been probably the single most influential theory in the pain field uh, since the gate control theory. And it's been advanced to explain how patients with an acute or subacute pain condition might over time end up in a chronic state of depression and disability. And Vine talked about injury or strain leading to the experience of pain, which in turn, if people start to catastrophize and worry inappropriately, can lead to fear of movement or fear of re-injury can lead to avoidance and stopping doing things because they're afraid of hurting themselves and you end up with disuse, disability and depression. In contrast, if the pain experience is dealt with promptly and managed and understood, this reduces the level of fear and exposure, re-exposure to the situations that they might might have become fearful of and recovery. So this model really has been one that's been very important not only in research terms but also it's got attractiveness uh, to clinicians. But of course, there's an even worse story in the left hand loop here catastrophizing and so forth, avoidance. People become concerned and more aware of symptoms themselves. Uh, and you uh, talked already uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, about the importance of central mechanisms. And uh, sometimes, if we become too hyper vigilant and concerned, it can really short circuit uh, adaptive ways of coping with pain. The second model that um, Steve Linton and Bill Shaw uh, uh, drew our attention to in the paper, was that when low back pain befalls an individual who's already under significant psychological stress or whose coping resources are stretched thin, pain may result in more functional limitations and generate higher levels of emotional distress. What does this mean? Stress diathesis. It's a concept of pre-existing or ongoing vulnerabilities producing an enhanced response. Diathesis originally was used to refer to a genetic predisposition, and it originated in the psychosomatic field. But it has echoes in the stress and life event literature and the concept of vulnerability and risk that you will see dotted around uh, uh, the, the, the literature. It was first used in thinking about pain by uh, distinguished researchers such as Flor and Dennis Turk, really in the late 80s. Uh, and although the term is not terribly, people don't use the term, stress diathesis very much, it really was one of the antecedents of the development uh, of the yellow flags. Next model, the self-efficacy model, has been defined by Bandura as the belief in one's capabilities to organise and execute the courses of action required to produce given attainments. Well, let's try to translate that into English. It's talking about an important theoretical mechanism underpinning the development of self-management interventions. Recommends that provider advice and treatment should be delivered in such a way that takes into account individual patient preferences, involving patients in decision making and producing useful management strategies for coping with flare-ups and functional difficulties. What about the more recent acceptance and commitment model? At the heart of this model, developed originally by Hayes in 1999, the concept of psychological inflexibility or inability to persist in or change behavioural patterns that might serve as long-term goals or values, and it's become an approach to pain management. The implication of the model for chronic pain is that individuals should reduce futile attempts to avoid and control pain. Focus, instead, should be on living life to the fullest, participating in value activities, and pursuing personally relevant goals, And this is just so aspirational, you can't believe it. A little bit more then about acceptance and commitment. Similarities to cognitive behavioral therapy and the focus on behavior change. The main difference is on the role of cognitive factors and how they might be addressed as mechanisms associated with the therapeutic response. There's some evidence in chronic pain patients that acceptance leads to less emotional distress and higher physical functioning. And currently it's receiving quite a lot of research interest. Seems better suited for tertiary rehab than secondary prevention, but there are trials at the moment ongoing in this therapeutic approach in the context of secondary prevention. And finally, there's a misdirected problem-solving model, which is described in more detail in the paper than I can go into today, but if you just look at some of these links... Uh, Crombies and his colleagues, distinguished psychologists, pain psychologists, have been looking at in experimental studies of the sort of ways that pain affects thinking, the sort of role of worry and emotion, and how sometimes people get stuck in kind of feedback loops, uh, which really become quite unhelpful uh, in dealing with a pain problem. Misdirected problem solving, the models suggest that worries about pain, such as catastrophizing, are the product of a human disposition and probably an evolutionary advantage to solve problems by verbally ruminating on possible negative outcomes and plotting methods of avoidance or escape. Based on a lot of experimental work into the relationship between worry and pain, And perhaps explains why persistent pain repeatedly interrupts attention, fuels worries about negative consequences, and produces hypervigilance, over-concern about pain, and repeated efforts to alleviate the pain, even when there's no belief that a solution exists. So its specific role in secondary prevention is still to be established, but the the overall construct, I think, is, is, is helpful in understanding the sort of mess that patients sometimes get into. And to almost conclude, uh, the end of the, uh, the paper, um, Stephen and Bill have produced a number of guiding principles and some commentary on this, which I don't have time to get into, um, but talking about a number of the important factors that we should bear in mind. And the first point is that psychological factors are not routinely assessed, but persistent pain is emotional and behavioural consequences. Depression makes pain more difficult to deal with and of course one of the most effective treatments for depression is showing people how to cope with pain persistent pain can lead to hypervigilance and avoidance for which simple distraction is not effective and there are wide individual differences in attitudes and beliefs and that's why you have to start by really finding out where the patient's at before you start uh, advising them about what to do personal expectations are quite strong predictors of outcome And catastrophisation is an important predictor of pain persistence and clinical outcome. There's been a lot of uh, research done into this construct, and probably after fear, catastrophisation is the most important uh, uh, psychological variable that reflects pain and disability. There's some evidence, as I said, that personal acceptance and commitment is associated with better outcome in chronic pain. And social obstacles may also constitute barriers to return to work, as Bill Shaw is going to uh, present to us uh, shortly. And they've suggested that with proper support and training, these psychological factors can be incorporated into conventional treatment methods. And that's really the whole tenor of this special issue. Well, finally, talking a little bit about yellow flags. This is a monograph that was produced to try to uh, encapsulate what we knew at that time about psychosocial factors. Psychosocial referring to the interaction between the person and the environment and their influences on behaviour. We developed them originally in uh, 1997, and then this little monograph we addressed beliefs, behaviours, and emotional responses, likely to identi- uh, identifying them uh, to be helpful in developing long-term problems. <coughs> contained both health and occupational elements. It took me a long time to get that yellow flag to fly. Let me tell you, I hope you appreciate this. <laughs> Original monograph included a screening tool, a questionnaire, a Linton and Holden questionnaire, which has been later developed into the Oribri questionnaire, assessment guidelines based on STEM relief prompts, and 12 management recommendations, which I thought were pretty neat, and nobody ever talks about them. Why were they developed? Well, in the early mid-90s in New Zealand, the cost of musculoskeletal problems and low back pain in particular were becoming a major problem because patients had a legal entitlement to as much treatment as they requested following a self-defined musculoskeletal accident. Physiotherapists and chiropractors in particular were offering massive numbers of treatment sessions. I interviewed one patient that had over 500 physiotherapy treatments. And the cost of chronic low back pain was bankrupting the New Zealand Accident and Compensation Corporation. The key question is, why were so many cases becoming chronic, so disabled, and not returning to work? Was there any way of preventing this? So Nick Kendall, senior lecturer at the University of Otago and pain psychologist, was asked to help the corporation investigate the problem when he roped in Steve Linton from Sweden and myself from the UK. This led to the birth of the yellow flags, which I'll give you an insight into. First thing is, it happened in New Zealand. (laughs) Land of Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And Nick and I, uh, in a couple of days off, went up to the Maruya Thermal Springs in the Southern Alps. Volcanic area. Thermal mineral water. We were there for a couple of days, several bottles of fine New Zealand wine. Like an interesting chemical reaction. (laughs) So that was the origin of the yellow flags. We later on talked about blue and black flags. Kim Burton and I, two more coloured flags waving, please note. Blue flags concerned with the perception of work and working conditions which after injury may become significant obstacles to recovery and are often not addressed specifically in clinical treatment and rehab. And black flags were objective working characteristics and conditions. So we made a differentiation between the clinical yellow flags and the occupational factors. And this was summarised a couple of years ago in a monograph that was an update of the 1997 one. And here we talked about the need to consider person factors, psychosocial factors associated with unfavourable outcomes, the ones I've just told you about, and with the transition to persistent pain and disability. Also look at workplace factors, stemming largely from perceptions about the relationship between work and health, associated with the reduction in the ability to work in prolonged absence, and Bill uh, Shaw is going to present to us on that. And finally, black flags, the wider systems and contexts in which the person functions, entitlements to health care, um, building issues. They may operate at a society level or the workplace, and they're important because sometimes they can block uh, recovery to work while pe- if people are still symptomatic. So in conclusion, the nature assessment and management of these factors are now going to be addressed by my colleagues. And consideration will be given both to the methodological challenges in linking risk assessment with intervention, but also the practical difficulties of developing and implementing psychology, uh, a psychologically informed practice. And it's now my great pleasure to hand over to Julie Fitz, who is one of, the most, mo- one of the most distinguished clinical and research uh, physical therapists.
4: morning thank, thank you Chris um, so my uh, my role in this particular special issue and in, and in this platform session was was to talk about um, translating some of these ideas uh, towards clinical practice uh, and some of the um, immediate um, Challenges that come up as you look at that, and also to bring a perspective as a as a researcher trying to investigate how we move these uh, constructs and models into uh, the clinical realm. So uh, that was the nature of the topic that we dealt with in this particular issue. And I and I um, I need to acknowledge uh, Jonathan Hill, who was a, will be the first author on that particular paper, and, and a lot of this represents uh, his work and and insight. Uh, he's a researcher at the University of Kiel. Uh, wasn't able to be here, so I'm going to uh, speak to these ideas in, in, in his stead. So uh, to give a little bit more historical perspective just to set this up, um, I, I think we all recognize that our understanding of the course of low back pain has been evolving over time from uh, general recommendations that uh, patients uniformly did well to a more nuanced understanding that Um, What patients do as they progress from a new onset of low back pain uh, uh, throughout the course of time is not nearly that simple. Uh, And and there's uh, various patterns that you can see set up as as the research begins to look at this a little more carefully. Uh, So uh, there's been a couple of papers similar to the one uh, by Henschke et al. that I I referenced below that that in various ways point out that... um, from the standpoint of entering the primary care, entering usually the healthcare delivery system via primary care with a new onset of back pain and then what happens to you follows different patterns. And that there's a sizable and and not insignificant in terms of the degree of uh, suffering to individuals as well as the degree of costs imposed uh, by these groups that remain uh, uh, with severe chronic or at least fluctuating symptoms. And the attention to that group of folks um, who get 500 treatments in New Zealand, apparently, um, as as Chris pointed out, really uh, caused a lot of emphasis on looking for what's what's different about these individuals that's putting them into that sort of pattern. And that led to a a much greater appreciation of psychosocial factors as being uh, more important than physical or biomedical factors in this particular process. And... And I feel wholly inadequate that my little flag can't wave, I'm gonna go home and (laughs) and figure that one out, maybe you can help me. Uh, But this understanding then led to sort of conceptualizing this as these ideas of yellow flags and and, um, uh, this is a very simplified list of a very complex set of constructs uh, as Chris laid out. Uh, And and I think we generally appreciate this now in the management of low back pain, uh, but how well we actually do something with the information is, is, is a different question. So the the main point of what I wanna talk about is what can we do with this? Um, what are these variables, and, and there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of constructs and a lot of models, so the complexity um, becomes apparent as soon as you start to, to really dig into this. But what are these variables actually telling us from a clinical perspective? How should they, or, or maybe even a better question, should they influence management in some way and 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 how do we look at the research that's tried to disentangle these uh, very complex models and constructs into something that's clinically digestible and and applicable so i, I i'm going to uh present these in sort of three categories of ways that we can think about what these factors tell us and how they might be useful and and there's there's no bright lines between these these concepts in fact there's they're not mutually exclusive so uh, if, if a variable a particular psychosocial construct has meaning it, it could it could Fill, f- flow into a, uh, any one of these kind of ideas. But we think about, um, and I, I'm just using fear as as, as a, a stereotypical psychosocial factor here. One of the things that we think these variables tell us, some of these variables, is is information about prognosis. So something about in general, what the course of that person's back pain is going to be, so if we have a, a negative factor like we would vi- uh, uh, believe high fear to be, that, that in general that's bad, and uh, w- regardless of management, there's gonna be a, a, a lesser outcome for that individual. Um, we also think about these things as, as treatment moderators, and and, and in w- this is, rather busy and, and, and may look a little complex. But really all we're saying is that it's a, it's a little bit more than that. And maybe a variable like high fear really relates to uh, treatment effects specific to certain treatments. So that when we see that sort of construct show up in a patient and we identify it, that there's a, a specific treatment approach that's matched to that patient that we ought to do and if, if we don't find that factor in a patient, there's an alternative approach that's the appropriate treatment for that patient. So it, it takes that idea of just generally associated with good or bad outcomes to a more treatment-specific, matching sort of perspective. Um, and that may be where some of these variables come in. And then there's another uh, way that we can think of these things as well, and that, that's somehow that these variables are, are on the pathway, the causal pathway, if you will, between a particular treatment and the outcome that you get. So that the treatment, um, whatever the treatment is, may have its effect, may at least be partly explained by its ability to mediate some of these factors. So, even a treatment that's maybe not explicitly designed as cognitive behavioral or designed to reduce fear may actually uh, impart some clinical benefit to a patient because it has an effect on the patient's fear. Uh, and we would call that kind of variable a, a treatment mediator. And again, these are not mutually exclusive, but they're ways to begin to think about these factors and then. Um, as we talk about these different uh, factors and what the research can tell us a little bit, uh, the other part is then, okay, Well, these, if, if, if a certain factor falls into one or all of these categories, the clinical response to that information would, would be a little bit different. So we'll try to tease that out. So if we have prognostic factors, things that are just, it's generally good or it's generally bad to have this or, or not have this, uh, we generally think about those sorts of, of items as screening items, because they tell us something about where a patient is likely to end up, uh, and that may tell us something about the general strategy of how we want to manage that patient. Uh, so if we uh, identify a patient who has a real absence of, of negative risk factors for uh, with respect to prognosis, the general wisdom would say uh, intervention should be minimal, uh, because to do otherwise would... At least be wasteful, if not uh, potentially confounding that sort of uh, prognosis. When we identify things that are treatment moderators, we're really talking now about something at a little more uh, granular level in clinical practice and with respect to actually making treatment decisions, so that uh, these would be variables that might be part of a clinical ex- evaluation, which would begin to point to a s- more specific a treatment protocol for that patient as opposed to sort of a general management strategy. Um, so I'm going to label that as some kind of treatment decision aid. And if we have variables that we know are are mediators of treatment, and remember, these are the things that need to change for good stuff to happen for that patient, then generally what we're talking about there is some sort of ongoing monitoring factor. If we know that we really need to get this variable to change for success to happen, regardless of what the strategy is to get it to change, then it probably would suggest we ought to be monitoring that particular factor as we progress through treatment. Okay, so I want to take these kind of one by one for a moment here. So there's been probably the most work on these various psychosocial variables as uh, prognostic factors. So that, and, and again, I'm just using fear as an example. Whatever that fill in your favorite variable there is, is associated with outcome. Um, so this is some kind of factor that can be used to estimate the likelihood of a certain outcome occurring. Uh, as we mentioned, this is, this is relevant for understanding the likely course of back pain, and it has implications from a clinical perspective for education and counseling of the patient, uh, perhaps resource management, as well as um, management strategies for the individual, as well as monitoring based on expectations for what's likely to happen. So identifying risk groups with different prognoses could provide further insight into all these decisions. That's why there's there's some a real attention to this. Um, and as we mentioned, uh, it, identifying either a negative or a positive progn- prognosis based on whatever factors we can identify may help us to, to get a sense of general strategy of management. So this is the idea of screening tools. So let me try to illustrate this in a way that um, may or may not help at all, um, this is a little nomogram of uh, uh, relative risk reduction and number needed to treat, which gives you a sense of how impactful a treatment is. So think of a theoretically average back pain patient, um, and the value of a brief um, intervention educational strategy designed to reduce fear and set more positive expectations that was studied a few years ago by uh, Von Korf. So from, I'm, I'm going to take that group from Henschke's study of severe chronic symptoms uh, post-onset of back pain. And, and she put it at 21%. So if we say the average back pain patient has a 21% risk of going that route, um, the value of this brief educational intervention, at least according to Von Korff's article, was a relative risk reduction in, in that bad outcome of about 22%, which, uh, gives you a number needed to treat of 17. If you don't understand numbers needed to treat, um, you're not alone. Uh, I don't understand them completely either. But uh, suffice it to say, bigger is a less effective treatment. So this would suggest this particular treatment has an impact. And depending on how you interpret that number needed to treat, it's not huge, but it helps. Um, so if we give this management strategy to the average person, we kind of get this. Um, now. If we identify through some kind of screening mechanism that a person has an increased risk, uh, and I just uh, use 50% for ease, uh, and we still have a treatment that has this particular treatment effect that isn't changed by the fact of the person's increased risk level, it still is what it is and it has this particular effect. Now the number needed to treat goes down. And again, all you need to know about this is it's it's suggesting that this management strategy has a bigger impact when delivered to high-risk patients because of this level of pre-treatment risk of going down a bad path. Uh, and, And this is the kind of information that we think screening tools give us. If we have treatments that we know have an effect, that's not necessarily moderated by the level of risk at baseline, then we ought to apply them to the high risk patients because uh, if they still manifest that same effect then uh, they'll help, they'll have a bigger impact in that higher risk group. So what are these prognostic factors? Um, Well uh, this is uh, information I took from a recent um, systematic review by Jill Hayden looking at prognostic studies for back pain, which I found very helpful. And, and she pointed out that there's been, she broke the types of studies of prognosis into a couple of different categories. And most of the studies of prognosis she labeled as explanatory, and I think accurately so, which basically do something like this. The, you take people with back pain, uh, they may be acute, they may be chronic, some, somewhere along the line. Uh, define an outcome of interest, return to work, disabling back pain, progressing to surgery, what have you. And then look at predictors and say this is associated with that. And there's been a lot of these studies done. Um, and their results are not as coherent as maybe we'd like to think they are, they, and sometimes they seem a little contradictory. Uh, and and. W- w- it's difficult to interpret because there's so many potential variables that can be looked at that taking the information and putting into clinical practice is a little um, difficult to see. Uh, in fact, she noted that in a review of 69 studies, there was 221 distinct prognostic factors identified, which isn't terribly helpful clinically, um, what to do with that. Uh and, and what we really need are confirmation studies, confirmation studies that deal with the redundancy and overlap in these factors and really try to uh come to the word we love to use in research is the most parsimonious set of predictors, the the ones that are most impactful and stand out from the rest um and and um take into account the fact that there's a lot of redundancy among these factors. So this is also from uh, her review and, and these are all the different domains that have been studied and you can't read it, which is kind of the point. There's so many of them uh, that this isn't very clinically uh, useful or appealing. So that's a, that's a part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge is sort of where are we picking people up and what are we trying to predict? So if you think about this across a spectrum, you know, we can take people who have a new onset of back pain and we can look all the way down the road at things like long-term disability, work-loss surgery, what have you, or we can just predict they're moving to the next step, Uh, or we could start people at that step and then look at those various transitions. So this is part of the complexity is the variables that are risk factors for one transition may not be variables for the next transition and that's not always um, dealt with well in research. We sort of think of a bad thing happening is sort of the same across this whole spectrum. So just a couple of recent studies that that point out some of this. Uh, This was a study from um, uh, some of Chris's colleagues in the UK looking at patients visiting primary care who either had acute slash subacute back pain or chronic back pain. The outcome was disability at 12 months and essentially what the question they were asking is are the, the prognostic factors the same for patients with these different durations of back pain, and what they found was was interesting. This is the final model, so this is again also taking into account the uh, the. Uh, it's using a multivariate strategy to take into account overlap and redundancy, uh, and and anyways, these are the results that they found, which actually were fairly similar. You can see the usual suspects show up there, and and uh, in general, uh, there's um, a lot of similarity. Fear of pain shows up in the chronic group, but not in the um, Uh, acute group, but otherwise it's fairly analogous. But the other thing they point out is that baseline disability explained the largest proportion of variability in both groups, and any additional prognostic factor only explained a couple percentage points of additional variance. So they had a large sample, which is nice, uh, but what that allows is for things that explain a relatively small, maybe even clinically insignificant part of the variability and outcome to enter in statistically to a model, and that um, is something that we need to to take into account in terms of the clinical utility of of these particular variables. Uh, Same research group looking at, uh, again, patients uh, entering into primary care, and really what this article was dealing with was that concern about overlap and Um, uh, uh, shared variability in terms of these different factors, they're not unique. Um, So, they looked at 20 psychological variables, uh, what an interesting um, uh, commentary on this paper called the usual suspects, uh, fear, depression, catastrophizing, etc. And then they also entered in variables from some of these additional theoretical models that Chris discussed, which which is interesting. Uh, And they wanted to look, first of all, at what's typically done, which is the one-to-one direct relationship of these models to outcome. And again, the outcome is disability. And then the distinctiveness, which is really part of the the problem here. So not surprisingly, just about everything was related. Um, Only two of the 20 variables. uh, all but two of the 20 variables had significant correlations with outcome at six months. Uh, that's not very helpful clinically. Four constructs were distinct predictors, and you can see them listed there, and what's absent is some of the usual suspects, um, and explained a fairly high amount of the variability, which is is encouraging. So. Uh, All of this, I uh, I bring up these recent studies to hopefully just kind of suggest there's a lot of complexity here and the ability to identify individual psychosocial constructs that really help us with respect to prognosis and screening is a little more difficult than you might think at first glance. And this particular uh, systematic review in JAMA was recently published last year uh, and was reviewing all of these various factors, which was helpful. Um, But the reason that I bring it up here is that they make the point in their discussion, and I think this is where some of the research is going, is that because of the difficulty with individual risk factors, uh, prediction instruments that are multivariate uh, may conceptually seem like they ought to be more helpful for identifying patients who are at risk, that take these various constructs and somehow put them together. Uh, But we don't have a, there's there's been several of these instruments proposed, but we don't have a lot of insight into which ones are most effective and um, how to use them. So I don't want to go into a long uh, discussion about these various instruments. These are four that you may have uh, come across if you look at this literature. The last two are probably, uh, well, the, the, the Orboro is probably the most researched prediction tool. Uh, the start screening tool is one that, um, that I've done a little bit of research with along with, with Steve and some other colleagues uh, and that is, is at least intriguing in terms of its potential to maybe fill this role, so I'll just briefly mention it. Uh, the Orbera questionnaire, uh, 21 items. Uh, some various cutoffs have been proposed. The specifics of this are a little beyond what I want to get into, uh, except to say it's it's kind of clunky, um, for lack of a better word. It's uh, 21 items is a lot. It's it's a bit um, involved. And uh, screening tools, the, the simpler the better, as long as you don't lose accuracy. This has been studied a fair bit though. It's been looked at in several different cultural uh, uh, settings and and languages, uh, and so it has some some interesting properties. Uh, The StartBack tool is designed for a a similar purpose uh, of putting together risk factors uh, across domains to stratify patients into uh, risk categories, low, medium, high, uh, in terms of their risk for a bad outcome. Um, uh, non-recovery. Uh, again, this tool is uh, widely available. Um, uh, these are the constructs that they pick up and from the psychosocial construct it really is items that relate to these particular issues uh, along with more physical uh, uh, disability uh, type items which are the top form. <laughs> And there's a little scoring algorithm here to put people into um, categories. Fortunately, it's quite simple, which is, is useful for clinical practice. Uh, and, and this particular instrument is something that there's, there's some ongoing research about, so I think you'll hear more about it. Uh, I just bring up this study because I found it very interesting. So this was a, a, a small study uh, that Jonathan did with his colleagues looking at the agreement between clinicians intuition and where this particular risk assessment tool put patients. So these were videotaped exams, and then they had um, various types of practitioners look at them and assess risk, and then compare that to the Starback tool. And I just, I just find this interesting in in uh, how poorly there was a match. Now, the. The gold standard, from a research standpoint, is maybe not clear of who's right, um, but they don't match up, which is uh, interesting, and and, uh, suggests that clinicians don't just sort of intuit this um, without assistance, which isn't surprising. Um, And this really bleeds, then, into the next uh, consideration for these factors, which is Uh, The other thing that the developers of this have done is link these different risk strategies, not just to understanding in general this person's likely outcome, but more specifically now targeting a certain management strategy to those particular patients. And you can see the the ideas that they have there. Um, and, And that really begins to lead into this idea of, factors, uh, psychosocial factors as treatment moderators. In other words, it's not just a matter of understanding prognosis in a general sense, but it's treatment targeting. So just a word about this. Uh, We're really asking now, uh, for whom, does a variable tell us for whom a certain treatment will work and it doesn't work in someone else? Which is a little different than just saying treat or don't treat. So uh, really what we're looking at here from a research standpoint is, is explaining heterogeneity and treatment effects. And this is clinically what we would think of as a decision aid that would help to tell you as a clinician uh, this is the strategy that's most matched to this particular patient, which is very appealing to us as clinicians. So just hypothetically again... Um, If if we're just dealing with a factor like high fear as a prognostic factor, uh, my y-axis here is change in disability. Uh, It it would look something like this if we had treatment one, which could be no treatment or some other treatment, treatment two. Treatment two is clearly the better treatment, whether you have low fear or high fear, Um, and and there may be a greater desire to use it in a a patient with high fear because of the low outcome, or the low likelihood of success with uh, the, the standard treatment versus something that looks like this, where uh, there's a statistically, this is an interaction. So uh, if you have low fear in my little theoretical, and this can work all sorts of different ways, but the key thing here is that the lines cross. Um, So if you have low fear in this particular theoretical example, it really doesn't matter what you do, but it does if you have high fear and there's a clear treatment choice that's better. Okay, so there's lots of statistical considerations that go into uh, teasing this out. It's a little complicated. But what we have to be a little bit careful about as researchers is not just looking at one treatment and identifying predictors of effect, and then separately looking at another treatment, identifying uh, factors related to success, and then somehow pulling that together and saying we understand what these moderators are. So this is an example of what we have to be a little bit cautious about. This was a randomized trial uh, done a few years ago with um, patients with subacute back pain, usual care versus a minimum intervention, which was a, again, cognitive behaviorally designed problem solving sort of uh, treatment. And what the authors of this paper did is look independently within these two arms of the study and say what factors was treatment success associated with. Um, And there's some things here that have intuitive appeal and they may may be tapping into something that's really accurate, but as a research strategy, this is a little uh, less than ideal. Okay, so before we look at a couple of of studies that have done it a little bit more the appropriate way, at least statistically, what treatments are we talking about um, targeting? And I'll just kind of categorize them into mostly educational interventions, which is the examples that I've used. Uh, versus uh, more exercise-based interventions with cognitive behavioral principles integrated. And and in general, uh, these fall into categories of graded exposure and graded activity, and and we'll uh, get into that a little bit more later. But um, those are the kind of treatments that we're looking at. Do these treatments even work? This was a recent um, systematic review in the Physical Therapy Journal. Uh, and the bottom line was, if you look at uh, what new information does this give us, they basically said not really much better than just sort of general good exercise. And then that raises the question immediately from clinicians and from researchers as well, okay, but can we target it to the people who really need it? And that's what we're talking about here. So this was a study that uh, Steve did a few years ago, and it and tries to get at that idea, and it, It's another one of those things that's really appealing as a researcher to say we can target these treatments and then sometimes we start looking at it and it's not as easy as we think. So this was patients with acute, subacute back pain. Basically, they got the same treatment in terms of the the type of exercise they were doing. It was whether or not the exercise was guided by cognitive behavioral principles that was the real difference. Um, There was no main effect for treatment. Um, But but when Steve broke out the group that had high fear versus low fear. So you can see the initial fear avoidance beliefs on the uh, x-axis. It looked like this effect moderation was going on. That if you had low fear, uh, or excuse me, yeah, if you had low fear, you'd do just as well with the um, uh, uh, traditional treatment. And if you had high fear, you you wanted the more biopsychosocially oriented treatment. So this is interesting because it suggests the type of effect that we're looking at. Uh, But this was a more recent study that Steve published, uh, kind of following up on that, um, and looking at now two different types of psychosocially-oriented exercise treatment versus uh, a typical exercise treatment. uh, And in general, what they found was a lack of uh, effect based on baseline levels of these proposed moderators, so uh, high fear or low fear. So, it, it, and, and this um, raises the question about whether or not uh, targeting these, tre- tar- if, we, if we're doing good standard exercise treatment, whether or not adding these, these uh, specifically psychologically uh, uh, oriented treatments adds additional benefit. Even when we target it to the people who seem like they ought to be able to benefit most. Now, but this leads into my next question, which is another interesting thing that Steve pointed out here, is that despite the fact that there really wasn't a treatment effect, the change in pain overall in six months was explained by changes in fear of uh, uh, fear avoidance beliefs and pain catastrophizing. So it may, it may not, it, the results wouldn't suggest that these variables aren't relevant. They just might not be subgrouping variables. They may be treatment targets uh, through whatever mechanism works best. And that really goes to this issue of a treatment mediator. That maybe what we do for treatment isn't nearly as important as that, except that it be able to change these particular variables. So this is mediation in a statistical sense, uh, where mediator variables are thought to be part of the mechanism by which treatment impacts outcome, any treatment. So the effect of treatment goes through this pathway where it has to change that intermediate step and then you get a better outcome. Uh, And this would really be a question of treatment monitoring. And this hasn't been studied nearly as much as some of the other uh, approaches that we've looked at, but uh, this was uh, an interesting paper uh, published a few years ago looking at patients with chronic low back pain, they were participants in a randomized trial. Uh, And similar to what Steve found, changes in pain catastrophizing were a mediator. Uh, There wasn't a main effect for treatment, but uh, changing pain catastrophizing was important, however you managed to do it. And and this is consistent with studies in the literature on cognitive behavioral treatment for other conditions other than back pain. Uh, So, and I just thought their their conclusion was was useful in in explaining what we're talking about here, that treatment elements that do not deliberately target cognitive factors may be effective via uh, psychosocial mechanisms because of this idea of mediation. And and this is intriguing for us to continue to to look at. So I'll just leave you with this model and thinking about what do we do with this information. and how do we use it clinically? There's a lot more research that needs to be done. Uh, and thanks for your attention.
5: All right, good morning, everyone. Um, I am Steve George from the University of Florida and I'm going to talk in a little bit more detail about these uh, interventions and talk a little bit about the, um, some of the philosophical changes that might be needed to be considered and then uh, in a little more detail uh, some of the interventions for those of you who are thinking about implementing these um, in the practice. I would like to acknowledge, uh, similar to Julie, I had a co-author on this paper uh, who was not able to make it. Michael Nicholas in Australia, who's done a ton of work in this area, uh, was great to work with and had the pleasure of having dinner with him in Montreal. We happened to be at the same conference and got to know the uh, personality a little bit, which was enjoyable. And again, like this whole presentation, it's following the format of the article. So if you uh, want more detail, um, it will be in the article. So as I mentioned, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the differences because we do talk to uh, PTs and do training with physical therapists and uh, some of this is, I think, really intuitive for those who notice these things in the clinic, the psychosocial aspect. But there are some lessons that we were taught quite well in our entry-level training that um, you have to be willing to maybe put those to the side or not view that as the primary way. And and one of the ways I start thinking about this is the difference between pain relief and pain management, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, Then we'll get into some of the philosophy of current pain management, and then I will talk about some specific intervention approaches if everybody's in agreement with that, then I'll I'll move forward. So So pain relief is is really how I was taught. So I'm assuming I was taught like most of you were taught. Um, And we were taught in a very um, anatomical, biomechanical model. I I did do some uh, manual therapy training, so there was definitely a bias in the manual therapy training. Um, Learning about postural faults, movement faults, palpation, um, and it was very oriented on uh, victors and vectors and forces and rotations and things like that. So um, we, the reason we spent all that time learning the anatomy, um, learning the structural faults, was there was this uh, assumption that if we corrected those faults that um, that would relieve the pain because the pain was a result of those faults. And um, I know I'm condensing a lot of training into four bullet points here, but that's really when you take a step back and look at it, that is really the, the philosophy of manual therapy and, and um, even some exercise therapies. And um, it's really an interesting perspective because uh, again, it really took me getting to um, work directly with and talk to psychologists and other folks who weren't burdened with some of those, uh, those training lessons to, to really kind of get this big picture view and, and it's been really enlightening. Uh, so again, if we, uh, we were taught and, um, that if we address these faults, the result will be the less musculoskeletal pain. Well, um, Chris has mentioned, and I'm going to give some specific examples, the, um, this would be a great model if the faults were the primary cause of the way the pain was expressed. And Chris showed some current conceptual models of pain, and there was not a lot of direct lines in those models from one thing to another. Um, so it, it may have been a little presumptuous to think that the, the fault was the primary cause. And um, I'm going to give you some specific examples, and these are examples, again, that have helped me to kind of turn the page and that I use when I talk to physical therapists about implementing these. So hopefully they'll be helpful. Um, the first, and I'm going to go through this one pretty quickly because I, I know there was some session on this earlier um, yesterday about a failed voyage. And, and, and the first is just um, this idea that imaging for, for identifying sources of pain really it really is not viewed as an important um, part of pain management. Um, please do not confuse this with saying imaging is not important. Imaging is very important in certain patients, and, but it's probably a very small number of patients who, uh, who need the imaging compared to the ones that get the routine imaging. And if you don't believe me, and I'm not suggesting you should believe anything I'll, um, that I'm saying, but I will cite the things that are a little more credible. Um, this is now routinely mentioned in practice guideline recommendations. And this is really a transition that has come over the last 10, 15 years where um, even folks who routinely use imaging, I think, are well aware of the limits of imaging. And, and for those of us um, who've been working in this field, it's interesting to see practice guidelines um, that discourage imaging. And in these same practice guidelines, they're encouraging a psychosocial patient interview. And that's a, you know a drastic change from when this started. The second is uh, this variability in the nervous system processing of pain that, that Chris mentioned. And, and really functional MRI has been a, a big benefit to that. And, and there are a lot of interesting studies. This one from Coghill is, is one that really helped to, to turn some attention. And what I think you have to do is this, this study really, to me, makes it clear that pain is subjective, but it doesn't doesn't mean that it's arbitrary. And I think sometimes that message gets blurred. When when people talk about pain being a subjective experience, that is completely true. But sometimes the slippery slope with that is that pain is arbitrary. And um, what this research has shown, I think first it was highlighted with uh, some of the pen and paper psychological processes, and now it's being... Um, validated um, with the the cognitive fMRI activity is that yes it is subjective and it's not arbitrary. Uh, The way you can tell that is um, so there there are some folks who study pain by giving someone a standard stimulus and this is a an example of a study that did that. So and and we actually use a similar protocol so I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, 49 degrees Celsius most people say that hurts. Um, you can give someone a 49 degree Celsius stimulus to a part of their body, in this case the the arm. Um, The stimulus can last a set length of time, most of the time about three seconds, and then you ask your subjects to rate it. Uh, This has no direct clinical relevance, but it's a fascinating way to study pain because our patients come in with mechanisms of injury that are variable, duration that is variable, it's all over the place. Our patients already have a ton of variability in their pain experience. Well, when you study pain this way, you're eliminating the variability in the pain. If you're thinking of it, um, you're giving them the same dose of pain. Um, And in this case, that dose of pain was one temperature Um, to one anatomical location in healthy volunteers. You cannot reduce the system much more than that, right? There's no tissue damage. This is just a brief, intense stimulation. Well, one of the things that's interesting is this scale shows my inability to use the mouse and also um, the variability in pain ratings from that single stimulus. Some folks rate that very low. Some folks rate that very high. We see the same exact results in our studies. Other people see these same exact results in their studies. <clears throat> We've done correlations with psychological factors. Um, what this shows is when you look at brain activity for the folks who were high compared to the folks who were low, And any time you do functional imaging, it's always the difference that you're interested in. Because the pain, pain at any level, lights up the brain, as Chris mentioned. So you want to subtract out the conditions to see what the difference is. And you can see there are differences in um, classic pain processing areas of the brain between the high and the low pain ratings. Um, And this really kind of, I think, put the put the idea out there that it is subjective, but it's not arbitrary, and here are some differences, some real differences in brain activity. So this variability is there, and, and then again, you have to think about how closed this system is, and how open the system is that you guys are dealing with pain. You're dealing with all the, variabil- uh, the variability in the pain mechanism, all those factors that are on those graphs. So if this is, if this is a best-case scenario, you can imagine how variable it is in the clinical setting. So you expect high variability in pain reports with standard stimulus. You should not be surprised then that you have high variability in clinical pain reports. Uh, the other thing um, with the manual therapy training is, um, you know, you, you you spend a lot of time... Um, identifying the source of the pain. And there are some folks who have done some really neat, there's lots of different ways to hurt people um, to, and for research purposes. And if, if you're interested in that, um, I can, we can to go that way with the panel. But it is a very interesting way to study pain. It's a lot easier than trying to figure out what um, makes pain get better. In this study, this was a study um, that really caught my eye because this is a discrete 10-minute um, stimulation with electricity to an anatomical structure that most of us would not expect to be associated with leg pain. And I blocked it out there, but it's so small you couldn't see it anyways. But this is a, this is a pattern, um, I can't remember how many subjects, of right L3, L4 facet joint. So these are again healthy folks, focal stimulation to one anatomical structure. And again, I'm not saying that I remember all from my manual therapy training or that I was the best manual therapist, um, but I do not remember leg pain, especially in the front of the leg, being someone's location that I would expect to have facet joint pain. Um, It's much more was this type of pattern which is the most common, to be perfectly fair and and clear, this is the most common location. That was the highest frequency. But you can see there was a wide, wide variation in the pain report. And again, this is a focal stimulation of the facet joint. Uh, 10 minutes of continuous electrical stimulation of constant intensity. It was 200% of their local pain threshold, Um, which again is much more precise than we can uh, do. And again, these these are point of proof studies This is variability in location, incredible variability in pain location with standard stimulus. So you can imagine the the variability that you would expect in clinical settings. And then the last one is the imaging really has been taken a beating. Most of that imaging, though, has focused on identification of anatomical structures, bony, ligamentous, osteophyte formation, things like that. So one of the, the fallbacks is that, well, maybe there's the muscle is a good source of pain. Maybe this is muscular pain, and our imaging has been focused on uh, the bony anatomy. Uh, so one of the things we did, this is from a colleague at UF, Mark Bishop. Uh, one of the things that he has done and started looking at inducing muscle pain uh, through exercise. So essentially, delayed onset muscle soreness, exercise someone's back extensors till fatigue. And then have see what happens. Um, again, another way to hurt people. So you guys now know three ways to hurt people for, for research. We see we reproduce. You know any pain model you do. We're starting to think if we don't see variability, it's a lousy pain model. Um, and we see these are folks that have the same um, same area about 450 millimeters of pain. So same area, but you can see there's variability in the location of that area one report very low, one report that is moderate. Now the thing that was very interesting is we also have colleagues who are studying Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and they have some very sophisticated imaging techniques that I cannot tell you about except to say they're very sophisticated. And they are non-invasive ways to measure muscle damage because in Duchenne's they want to limit the number of biopsies that the kids have. So they're getting very, very innovative about measuring muscle damage. But we use those same techniques to measure the muscle damage thinking, Well, maybe it's the amount of muscle damage that is driving that nociceptive input. Maybe if we can measure that muscle damage very precisely. And um, you can see, for those of you who aren't familiar with correlation coefficients, um, that's not a very good correlation coefficient at all. Um, That is, the the T2 change in muscle damage had uh, zero correlation, essentially, with the reports of pain intensity. So we had a very good measure of that peripheral insult probably the best one we can do with muscle damage in this type of thing. And it was not um, correlated at all with our pain intensity. So these four things, uh, again, are, are demonstration, proof of concept that there, there are some issues with peripheral fault identification. Um, and it really is um, a result of the variability in, in the pain experience. And that variability is because of all those arrows and all these models that, um, that we show you guys. So um, in transitioning from pain relief to pain management, you have to accept the variability. Um, you have to also get over finding the definitive cause of the musculoskeletal pain. Um, I put difficult there to be politically correct. It's probably impossible to find where the cause is. Um, and you, when you treat musculoskeletal pain, you're really dealing with that variability now, um, and you need to be aware of that. So in the pain management approach, um, there's a much less emphasis on anatomy, posture, biomechanics, those types of things, and this is where then it starts to get a little interesting uh, because these are what a lot of our curriculums are based on, a lot of our models are based on, um, and they may have appropriateness, but if uh, for, for musculoskeletal pain, um, that has to be questioned. Um, the other thing is uh, there's an assumption that the, the pain is always going to limit activity and there's always going to be a reduction, but we do know there are some folks that can function with pain and we do know that r- early return to activities when you have pain is actually um, therapeutic. So there, you have to remove this assumption that, the, um, that you have to have no pain before you can resume activities. Um, We have to be aware of patient subgroups that have been identified and and not based on Uh, fault identification or um, biomechanical approaches, but have been identified through the different methodologies that Julie um, really brought us up to speed on on the different ways that those can be done. So there may be prognostic factors, there may be a treatment target that you're in, but the subgroups need to be based on those things. And then um, incorporating the psychologically informed interventions when warranted. And and again, Julie showed a nice um, empirical example of a treatment that has the same effect, but you get a better Better um, bang for your buck when it 's targeted just a little bit to the people with the poor prognosis. that slope of that line was the same, uh, but the starting point was different, and that 's where you got the uh, the more effective output and um... <coughs> So, some of the lessons that we've learned um, from acute and subacute pain management. Uh, use decision aids. We do not have a ton of validated decision aids for low back pain right now, but there's a lot of interest in this. But there is one that's out there, and for those of you who've been paying attention the last couple years, um, I think it's very interesting looking at this globally. There's I think there's now two clinical prediction rules that have been validated, but this is the only one that I know of that there's two validation studies. This is the first validation studies. And it's pretty clear. This is a, this is a group that if you interact, if there's some clinical factors, um, and if you match the treatment, you expect a better outcome. And um, really the debate now, I think, is how prevalent is that subgroup. Um, and what we're talking about in the, in the um, psychological, the... The um, identification of um, delayed recovery is really what I think of with the psychological risk groups. That's the decision aid, or that's the the subgroup that you're after. It's this this folks that, due to their psychological distress, they're going to be much more likely to have delayed recovery. And, and again, when I think globally, um, big picture, I think these are the two these are the two subgroups that you should be looking for that have a lot of evidence. Um, the problem with the psychosocial one and it 's the challenge, but it 's also the opportunity is we don 't have five factors that we can tell you if four of them are positive do this uh, that 's the beauty of studying spinal manipulation I guess that 's my you know my fault for not uh, doing what John Childs did for his dissertation. Sorry about that Julie so uh, Julie went over this quite well, but you never you want to miss out a chance to use a speed uh, an image from speed so um, the uh, there are some studies uh, that have done this quite well, and some of them were quite early, and, and they were very uh, influential on me and, and um, other folks. Looking at multiple predictors, so um, and again, this is kind of one of those qualitative things where studies that predict long-term and long-term outcome and do head-to-head comparisons generally, psychological factors do quite well. And if you're interested in some of these, um, we can provide you the references. But there are some really interesting studies that, even um, when this first came out, people were concerned, especially with the anatomical factors, the imaging, that um, we were just missing latent people. Like if you had a disc herniation and you were asymptomatic, that it just was, you were going to have back pain later. Um, There are some nice longitudinal studies that show progression of symptoms without. Progression in anatomical factors, deterioration of anatomical factors without the presence of symptoms. So, the, you know, the, even the longitudinal component is not there. So, uh, these are definitely a player in the, the predictors of delayed recovery. Um, pain management, then, uh, the, the debate will be which of these to the focus on. In the article, we focused on pain catastrophizing and fear. Chris has mentioned that those constantly pop up. Um, there does seem to be some interest in pain self-efficacy. So these are some things that you can think of um, being involved with with the delayed recovery. And as Julia hit on, these need to be assessed. Um, These are not gut feeling things. You need to measure them for two reasons. One, it's just a whole hell of a lot easier than relying on your gut all the time. And two, if these are potential treatment targets, you wanna know if they're getting better or or getting worse. Um, And they can be easily assessed. One of the things um, that, uh, again, working with psychologists, psychologists have much better communication models than we do, um, probably because they only talk to their patients, right, for uh, for the treatment. So that would, it's a good move on their part. It's very strategic, Chris. Uh, so there is um, some models that we can look at. And one of the things that was very helpful is there is some literature. Now, to be fair, most of this literature is focused on psychologists or physician communication, but there's probably some lessons that we can learn. Um, And these are not surprising, but these are empirically supportive ways to have effective patient communication. I think the thing that keeps coming up, though, is you need to explicitly address. Um, Everybody knows eye contact and active listening, right? Um, But you need to, that last one, you need to explicitly consider their psychosocial factors. And one of the first things that, um, when I work worked with therapists, is they're always a little hesitant, but the patients usually almost, I don't think, we've never had a true adverse event related to this, but the patients also are not, um, they don't view this as ab- abnormal or unusual. Um, these, this is what they're dealing with, so they're often happy to hear and to have it considered. Uh, Michael Nicholas put this together, um, another one of those with a lot of arrows, but what I want you to see from this one is look at the distance between the pain and the, and the the fault identification, and look at the excessive suffering and disability, which is really what we're dealing with. There is a whole host of Factors and they have all kinds of crazy interactions, Julie will be doing a primer on a statistical analysis of this model afterwards uh, for those that are interested. Um, but we tend to focus on the physical de- deterioration pathway for this uh, what we 're suggesting is broader consideration of the feelings of depression, helplessness, irritability, things like that that are linked to these help thoughts and beliefs, but they 're not independent of the factors that we are quite well trained in. And I think, again, that's the strength of our profession. Uh, uh, the people that I collaborate with most in this are psychologists. And, and psychologists, they're, they do not, are not routinely trained or are interested in the phys- physical deterioration part. And anecdotally, a lot of them like our combined potential approach for the, the non-mental illness aspects. Um, so this is an interesting model that is in the paper, but I, I, like I said, I wanna emphasize the, the, the distance between here and here and all of those potential factors. And I think that's important, um, another important reason to be aware of some of those models because you cannot measure all of these, but you can function in a specific model and measure those components. Um, there's also some basic cognitive behavioral methods um, again, these are fairly self-explanatory, but um, this is explicit kind of uh, way to handle this that uh, PTs may not be aware of. And it's, it's very similar to what we do, goal setting with our patients, but it's a different framework, um, not focused on range of motion, strength, things like that. Um, so there's an analysis part where there's observation. And again, notice the word behavior comes up a lot. I think one of the things we need to get better with is in the pain literature is is looking at behavior more than than self-report. You identify those that are associated with the problem and then you develop the the plan. Uh, The change plan, um, you know, you're breaking down into specific sub-goals that can be upgraded and this is especially important if you're doing quota or exposure. Get a plan together, and then you know. A key part of cognitive uh, behavioral approaches is the reinforcement part. Um, the, that is a huge part. You have to decide how the reinforcement is going to occur, and then the implementation. And this is when the fun starts. But your role then in, in CBT a lot of time is helping with problem solving, um, ensuring that they're on track. Um, a, a lot of people think you know the accountability part of the cognitive behavioral approach may be. The active agreement or ingredient that it's it is that um, that accountability that patient is reporting back to you what they did what they didn't do if you're doing these procedures in the clinic these are not patients that you let do their own exercise sets and they come back and do three you know oh yeah I did it all you you have someone working with them and make sure they understand they're being monitored uh, because it's the behavior that you're interested in. So that's the basic cognitive behavioral methods. What I've done a lot in my research is look at a specific model, and that's why I wanted to let you know that you know all these things are very complex, but if you're interested, I think it's easier to get inside one model and, and measure the key factors of that model and gear your intervention towards that. Um, I have spent a lot of time and uh, effort on uh, uh, the fear avoidance model. And uh, essentially, that is uh, a way to encourage confrontation and activation in those that normally would not. And it really is that simple. Um, uh, The devil is in the details and is into how you do that. But I think one of the reasons I gravitated towards this model is this is a model I was introduced in my clinical practice. And you can see the immediate clinical application of it uh, just with that statement. And there's three main ways to go about that, the education, the exposure, and the graded exercise. Um, Another quote that I really like that I think all therapists should be forced to read, and that's why we're looking at it right now, is just this idea of the patient education approach for back pain, and, and, and this is also the important time to mention, we're not talking about people with suspected red flags here, we're talking about people with elevated psychological distress that they need to be, and I love that word unambiguously educated um, we're not talking about um, mixed messages here we're talking about a very clear message um, that this is a common condition and that it's not something that you need careful protection for and that's a very different message depending on your philosophical approach to treating back pain. That's a very different message than some folks um, routinely give. And here are just some examples, and we use these examples when we're training therapists. Um, If you have patients with imaging findings, suggested ways to incorporate that into patient education. Um, The implications of low back pain, there's a lot of misinformation about how weak and fragile and delicate the spine is, um, That is not backed up, and also the treatment aspects. And there, this is, an, again, an earlier study, and there's been more on this. And the education seems to have a consistent effect. The size of that effect may not be huge, but when you look at the, the amount of time of the intervention and um, the cost that goes into it, often these end up being a nice supplement to other uh, treatments. Graded exercise, this is, um, and and Chris has already shown uh, Bill Fordyce's picture, who is very, very influential um, on this field. Uh, First kind of applied this in chronic pain settings, this idea of the classic operant conditioning, um, where you are rewarding uh, the behavior, reinforcing the behavior. You are not reinforcing the the resolution of symptoms. You're not waiting until that person is pain-free to increase their exercise, because all that is doing is rewarding and not a good pain behavior. You're telling them they need to stop having pain before they can do anything. Um, and we know that's not effective now. So this uh, intervention does not focus on symptom abatement. And uh, the evidence for this is still mixed. There's a few individuals' trials that show support, and the classic one is uh, Lindstrom's and in, 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 uh, earlier in physical therapy. Uh, there's some folks that are comparing it to other approaches. So there is work to be done with this. Uh, the other one that is becoming very popular is an exposure. And when you think of exposure, I always think it is based on a phobia model. So when you think of exposure um, and you think of fear, if someone is so excessively fearful of doing something that they're, they're not going to do it. Um, some folks have suggested, Vlayen being the primary one, that an exposure model is the better way to go. So if you have someone who is afraid of spiders, right? you show them a picture of the spider, it's a rubber spider, the spider's in the aquarium, and then the spider's crawling all over them. That's classic exposure to, um, to the fear of spiders. With back pain, it's, you have to ask them the activities they're afraid of doing, and you have to incorporate it in a similar fashion. And this is where the communication with the patient is vital because you're on one hand, you're going to ask them what they're afraid of and they're going to open up to you. On the second hand, you're going to say, guess what? We're implementing in your uh, treatment protocol those same things that you're afraid of. But you need to communicate that in a way that it's going to be helpful, not that it's punitive, that, you know, that they know what they're afraid of. Uh, I do want to mention uh, the measurement aspect of this. This is not something you can get from... Um, the questionnaires, the screen questionnaires, unfortunately. you need to have a systematic way of getting their fears, And there's two primary ways in the literature. One, the more elegant, uh, faster, or more elegant way is the photo method, where you, the subjects are shown patient or pictures of the activities and they rate them. And we developed a quick, dirty method where there's just 10 things, and they rate what their fear is. Um, and either, either ones of those have been used in clinical trials, they're probably acceptable. Great exposure trials are just coming out. Um, the the trend that you see is that in the chronic low back pain folks, it's a little better than weight list controls. Um, and then in acute and low back, the subacute, there doesn't seem, and Julie already outlined this, there doesn't seem to be a difference between doing focused or uh, robust exercise approaches. So in summary... Um, you know, this, for some of you this may be reinforcement, for others it may be a, sh- a shift in what we're suggesting. And um, these are kind of the keys, I think, to that. Uh, be aware of those multiple factors, be willing to measure some of them, um, and de-emphasize the importance of pathology. And again, that term secondary prevention, you know, the goal of back pain management in the future is going to be prevent recurrence, prevent chronicity. And this would seem to be a good way to do it. And I do think we're situated pretty well in the US healthcare system to do that. And we're holding questions till the end. So I'm going to turn the podium over to Bill Shaw.
6: All right, I'm going to be talking about occupational factors. And uh, these are sometimes considered a a sort of a subcategory of psychosocial factors. We don't normally think of workplace issues as something that is uh, something we frequently do in physical therapy, but I'm sure you hear a lot about these problems from your clients. And uh, what we're going to try to uh, present to you is the possibility that maybe these kinds of problems could be dealt with in a more routine and systematic way in the context of physical therapy. Uh, You're probably wondering why an insurance guy is up here telling you how to expand your services rather than how to confine them. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit about the place where I work. Um, This is the Liberty Mutual Research Institute for Safety. It's been around for more than 50 years, and Liberty Mutual has graciously funded this sort of independent... non-proprietary research center to study occupational health and safety issues and their kind of historical claim to fame is doing things like designing some of the early prototypes for seat seatbelts, uh, establishing industrial guidelines for manual materials handling and things like that and uh, more recently in the last 10 years or so we've been studying the issue of return to work um, specifically after workplace injuries. So we're, we're about, th- we're located in Hopkinton, Massachusetts which is about 30 minutes outside of Boston and if you can find us between the snowbanks, you're welcome to come at any time and have a tour of the Institute. If you just look at our web page, you can find that information out. A lot of what I'll be presenting here is the results of a conference uh, that we called a think tank that Chris Maine organized back in 2007. And I just wanted to acknowledge that the, my compatriots on the Blue Flags uh, subcommittee were uh, Daniel Vandervant from the Netherlands, uh, Stephen Linton, uh, Chris Maine, and Patrick Loiselle, uh from Canada. I want to start off by saying it, as as Julie mentioned we used to say that uh, 90% of people get get better very quickly from a an onset acute onset of low back pain we've uh, sort of revise that to be a little less optimistic now, and this is the kind of result we see for return to work in cases of acute work-related low back pain as an example. After a month uh, about half the people are, are really back to their normal lives and not really have any any particular complaints but the remaining half of the people are having still some sort of trouble doing their jobs either they're back to work full duty but they really are still struggling with some re- uh, persistent and recurring pain problems, they're actually on modified duty status or they haven't been able to return to work at all. So, uh, you know, in physical therapy, you're probably, you're not seeing those people who are back to work and and able to resume their normal lives very quickly. You're probably seeing most of the people on the left-hand side of this pie chart. But returning to work isn't easy after you've had an acute onset of low back pain. And this is a very uh, great interest to employers, mostly because it's a big cost issue for them. One of the things that some researchers at our institute do every couple years is look at what are the costs to industry uh, for various types of, of uh Uh, accidents that occur in the workplace and you can see that overexertion is by far the most expensive type of problem and about two-thirds of these are back pain cases. So for the average employer at least a um, a third of their workers comp costs are really coming from low back pain so this is something that catches their interest a lot and they're very interested in trying to do a better job with return to work in cases of low back pain. A couple years ago there was a a nice um, uh, systematic review done by Rene uh, Louise, uh, Louise Franch and some of her colleagues at the Institute for Work and Health trying to look at workplace interventions. So these are the kind of things that are done in the worksite or, or related to the worksite that seem to be helpful in facilitating return to work after low back pain. So if you just look down the, le- the left hand column here, you can see the kinds of things that there seems to be some good evidence that uh, early contact with an injured worker from a work site, uh, an early offer of accommodation, and some of these other things are very helpful. And they've actually uh, generated... Um, a nice kind of uh, useful brochure of information that's available to employers through their website about best practices for trying to facilitate return to work so you can kind of look down this list so these are the kinds of messages that that industry hears right now about facilitating return to work Uh, having a demonstrated commitment to health and safety making routine offers of modified duty um, Trying to people, return people to work without disadvantaging their peers and co-workers, having supervisors trained in this kind of area, uh, being having early and considerate and regular contact with injured workers, designating somebody within the workplace to coordinate return to work efforts, and uh, communicating with providers as much as, as possible. So these are the kind of principles that have been used in the workplace, and some of these may also pertain to the kinds of things we do in the clinic as well. So, back in 2007, when our our group got together and tried to look at uh, these occupational factors, one thing that we became very aware of is that that there were many studies, and many of the studies used very different variables, and it was really hard uh, as a practitioner to draw from this research any useful kind of uh, advice. So, that's what we tried to do. Uh, At the time, there were five recent reviews of Um, occupational factors that influenced uh, back disability you can see that each one of them had a different number of studies included depending on their inclusion criteria but the overall conclusion of all of these reviews was that occupational factors both physical and psychological impacted return to work return to work rates We've, you've heard a lot already about different kinds of screening questionnaires. Um, we, when we looked at the literature on how people collect this information, the only thing I want to say is that it's usually a screening questionnaire, some sort of interview that you do with the patient, or it could be something you actually do in the workplace. So you actually go and try to observe somebody uh, trying to do their work. And you also see a number of job domains that are included, uh, physical demands, psychological demands, social managerial factors, and workplace perceptions and beliefs. And these are sort of the blue flags, black flags that Chris has mentioned earlier. So what we try to do is draw from this literature what are the things that we really want clinicians to know about occupational factors? What are the kinds of questions they might ask uh, a patient? What are the specific areas that are probably have the most evidence base to work from? So we call these the big seven factors, so here they are. Um, The first one is heavy physical demands. So if a job sounds like it's physically demanding, or if a person tells you that their job is physically demanding, that's an indication that this is going to be a more difficult case in terms of return to work. Uh, It's usually things like bending, lifting, pushing, pulling. And and the important thing to note here is that from the literature, if you actually went and measured the physical demands of the person's work, that's not always such a good predictor of return to work. But if you ask the person to self-report the physical demands, that is. So in this case, it's better to get this information directly from the horse's mouth rather than to actually go do some sort of um, objective measurement of their actual demands. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. Uh, the second one is the inability to modify work, so some people just have the kinds of jobs where there is not a lot of flexibility or a leeway, they may have a public safety concern connected with their job, it may be that they're sitting, at, for example, as a school bus driver, you can't really go anywhere other than sit in your, in your chair and drive, uh, and if you can't do your job right, they may have some real public safety concerns about that. So these are the kinds of jobs that are often very problematic for return to work with low back pain. Uh, also patients who just report a lack of workplace support. So it might be somebody who works in a very isolated work setting, which is normally not a problem. Maybe they enjoy working alone, but in the, in the context of a low back pain episode, this could be a real complication. Uh, it could be that they're a new employee. It could be that they just don't get along with people in the work site. They're, they're not expecting people to really help them out of this problem. And just to show you some, some real data uh, from some uh, data that we've collected, uh, for example, job tenure seems to be a very consistent issue in return to work, so um, being, a new, being new on the job is a real risk factor for uh, a, a, a reduced ability to return to work, and being on the job for a long time, you tend to do better, and that's even with older workers. So it's better to be an older worker returning with low back pain than to be a new worker. Uh, Also, workers who who take more time to actually report the problem to their employer seem to do more poorly, which is a little bit surprising if you think that more severe kinds of accidents and injuries would tend to be reported earlier, but actually we see the the people who have taken longer to report the problem to their employer have done more poorly in terms of return to work. So this is probably related to uh, their perception that that, that this is not going to be well received by their employer and they're not going to get a whole lot of help with this problem. So they they don't report it for a while. The fourth one is is job stress, and uh, the kinds of jobs or the kinds of variables that we see in the literature here are uh, the kinds of jobs where you have to really be on your very best at every moment in your job, where there's very uh, strict requirements in terms of productivity, where it's very competitive, and if you're not uh, doing 100 percent, if you're somehow not able to to give your all, that you're not going to do a good job, and it's going to be really noticed or very embarrassing for you to do. Um, again, in, in the data that we collect with acute work-related cases of low back pain, people who say their jobs are always stressful uh, have uh, about a 67% return to work rate within three months. And people who say that it's really stressful, it's more like 80%. So you can see that these are measurable differences just from, just from asking one question. Uh, another issue that's a little different than job stress but comes out in the literature is job dissatisfaction. So people who have kind of boring, monotonous work where they're just not too excited about their job, um, where it's, there's nothing to sort of reinforce them to want to be in the workplace, uh, this is a problem as well. And then one that's uh, interesting is, is poor expectations for return to work. So if, if, a, if a patient says, well, there's just no way I'm gonna be able to go back to work, uh, they're probably right and, and it's not clear exactly why that is the case whether it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy or whether they're actually making an accurate read of the situation and the circumstances that they're in but this is a very strong predictor and probably the very best question to predict outcome in terms of low back pain return to work so if you only have time for one question for your patients the one to ask is do you think you'll be able to go back to work soon and that's probably going to tell you a lot more than any any more uh, long uh, lengthy assessment that you can do. So if you're not sure whether you'll be able to return to work within a month, you, you, you have a lot of trouble, more trouble getting there. And if you say, I'll definitely be able to return to work, you have an over 90% return to work rate. So that's the person you don't need to worry about as much. The last one is fear of re And uh, for a lot of workers, there may be a, a, a several specific tasks involved in their job that they're very afraid to do because they're very certain that if they do that again, they're, un, they're, they're positively going to have an, uh, an increase in pain, that they're going to have another whole onset of pain. And this is a great concern to them. So finding out what that particular, those particular tasks are and trying to find a way that you can overcome that fear is, a, is an important issue. And a lot of times people in this area also, they just feel like they need to be 100% before they return to work. So having any pain in doing their job is is an impossibility for them. So how often do you see these kinds of things? If you just look at population-based estimates from uh, people with reporting acute work-related low back pain, you know, uh, 30% of them have been on the job for less than a year, 40% report physical job demands exceeding 8 out of 10. Uh, 40% or have uh, no known modified duty options in their workplace. So you can see that uh, these are quite common problems that, that people report and you know, it's when you have all of these things on your plate that you, this is probably a, a really difficult case. The recommendation of the think tank for primary care physicians or attending physicians was to Try to give patients some sort of screening questionnaire. Uh, for those people who screen high, try to, to, to talk with them, give them some reassurance, and assess the need to, to do a little bit more. And if you're not getting anywhere at that point, really look into the possibility of trying to actually go to the worksite, or talk with someone in the worksite about the problem. All right, now's where I, I need to have, stick my neck out a little bit and try to make some very specific recommendations to you as providers. And I need to do this very humbly because I'm not a physical therapist and I don't know all of the ins and outs of your work. So hopefully we'll, this will uh, feed some discussion uh, later. But uh, there are some things that, are, that I think about physical therapy, and that is that you really get to observe people doing work. Uh, in in, in the time that you spend with them, and I think that's very important. You also see them over repeated visits, typically, so you get a chance to see how they change over time. And uh, physical therapists seem to be very good at establishing rapport and really being engaged with people because they have to kind of motivate them to exercise. So um, you know, these are things that you don't see in a lot of other clinical settings, for example, with primary care physicians. So you do have an opportunity to really kind of find out a little bit more about some of these problems, including workplace issues. So I've sort of created a hypothetical six-session uh, um, patient here and uh, what you might do routinely with, with people in, in the uh, context of workplace factors and how, how can you understand those a little bit better. So maybe at the first session you could just ask the person a couple of very vague questions about their work and get a sense from, about their general orientation to working life. So tell me about your work, how long have you been there, what's it like to do that kind of work, and, and, and how, how did your workplace respond to your injury? and you you know you might hear a whole lot just by asking those kinds of questions that will give you an idea of whether this is a something you want to spend a little bit more time on with this person because return to work is a you know it's an important outcome measure for for physical therapists as as well as for employers the second session maybe the thing to do would be to administer a self-report questionnaire of physical job demands so this kind of um, allows you to understand what the maybe in particular job tasks that are problematic for this person are, what kind of areas of physical demands are of greatest concern to this person and and, and you could learn a little bit about the nature of their job, which would, would probably help to, to further your rapport with this person as well. There are a lot of questionnaires like this. This is one that's um, uh, freely available because it was developed by the government, but it's a job requirements and physical demand scale, and it just asks people to indicate for each one of these different sorts of ergonomic uh, exposures how how many hours in the week do do they do that work. In session three, maybe take the results of that survey and uh, talk with them about what are the very most specific work-related challenges and functional concerns and how does that happen in the course of the day and and the type of work that they do. So be trying to identify what tasks are most difficult to resume, um, what will be the reasons um, that that some of these tasks might cause re-injury, what activities and postures are most painful, things like that. So this gives you a target. Um, And maybe one thing that could be used as a kind of a clinical rating system for yourself is to have a sort of a worksheet where people can list the four or five specific tasks that they are most concerned about and then monitor their perceived ability to do those things over time with the, the exercise and treatment that you're providing. Uh, in session four, uh, that you might want to try to understand their organizational context of where they work, so you know at this point know something about the physical job demands. And now you want to learn about, you know, how how is work managed in this workplace? Is it is this a benevolent employer or not? How much flexibility do they have? Because that will really influence uh, their ability to return to work. And we're and but my thought is that a lot of this discussion could happen in the course of uh, an exercise program that you're doing with someone so uh, I may be wrong about that but it seems this could be sort of usual discourse that you would have with a patient that wouldn't seem too out of place Uh, I'm not going to go through this long list but you know job modification is the thing that industry really looks to to make to facilitate return to work Um, I just want to make the point that we tend to think of these as things you buy, like a new chair or changing a, a workstation. But in reality, you know, the large majority of, of job modifications are just employers' allowances to uh, provide someone some additional flexibility as they're returning to work. So they tend to be more administrative types of things than actual physical changes in the work environment. Uh, another thing that's really important in this area of job modification to know is that a lot of workers actually sort this out completely on their own using the available leeway or flexibility that they already had in their job so they kind of negotiate this problem with their coworkers, with their peers with their customers to make their life livable when they do return to work and a lot of these things never make it into administrative or, or medical records at all so people who are good problem solvers they sort of go out and figure this problem out for themselves uh, and uh, in the, in the fifth session, you might actually try to brainstorm some possible job modifications with this person, just to kind of give them the idea that, that uh, well, maybe there are some solutions out there. If we look a little bit further, uh, one of the things that we've done with some of the research at the Institute is to really look at what's the best way to engage uh, a worker about possible job modifications to, to help with their problem. And, and we've used the six-step problem solving process as a way to do that. So basically, what you're trying to do is get this person on board to start thinking about what are the factors that influence my discomfort, what are the what are the really problematic job tasks, um, what helps or hinders my ability to cope with those problems, and what are some possible solutions. Um, So it's similar to the kinds of problem-solving strategies that are taught to people in executive training programs and things like that. So this is the kind of strategy you might use with one of your clients to try to get them thinking about their own, uh, how they're going to solve this problem, particularly if the pain recurs, which is quite common. And last thing I wanted to mention that, you know, as you sort of transfer this client back to maybe a treating physician, it is important to try to relay uh, information that you've learned in the case in the course of treatment. So, you know, one of the big problems is that you spend a lot of time with the, the client and now they're back with somebody else, and, and all of that information that you've learned, all the things that you've tried to do to help them think about the workplace is kind of lost. So maybe a way to do this better is to make sure that something about the workplace place is entered into it for a discharge note if it's a serious problem you probably would want to actually try to do this in a phone call if possible I know there's some real uh, uh, problems getting uh, physicians on the phone and things like that but uh, you know a a sample note might say that the job setting is blah 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 primary job concerns are this uh, the job modification efforts might focus on a certain thing etc uh, just to give you a real specific example, these are sort of adapted from a study that we did of, of uh, return to work case management. Uh, this is somebody who sounds like they really don't have much of, of if any, workplace concerns. The client has 10 years of experience in their current job as a building superintendent, and he reports substantial support from his employer and current supervisor for returning to work. No specific job tasks are a barrier for return to work at this time, but the client's concerned about keeping up with work demands while still experiencing symptoms. There may be some need to clarify employer expectations and timelines for resuming normal job responsibilities. So this kind of language in your discharge note might uh, inform who, the, the attending physician that this is probably not a big problem and this we're probably gonna sail through with this this guy. Uh, in contrast with that, here's the one with the, the sort of where there are a lot of problems. Uh, the client feels that his workplace has been unresponsive since the injury and that he's feeling blamed for the accident. He's reluctant to resume any work activities because he fears re-injury. His calls to his supervisor and fellow workers have not been returned. Communication between the client and the employer will need to be re-established before the client can be engaged in discussions about specific job modifications. So this is alerting other people in the system to that something more needs to be done. It might not fall within uh, the the scope of services that you provide, but at least you're, you're alerting people that this is a a more serious problem that probably deserves some more intervention. So in conclusion, I just want to uh, summarize that there's growing prospective research evidence to support a number of workplace factors that impact back disability. Uh, There's growing research evidence to support the efficacy of workplace interventions. And as clinicians, you know, we should try to think about how we can connect with that kind of thinking as well. Uh, Physical therapists may have opportunities to identify and address the workplace concerns of clients through the normal course of treatment. And, uh, but there are remain some issues of practicality and feasibility, which I recognize, and, uh, hopefully we can have more discussion about that. So that's it for me. Thank you very much.
5: Okay, I'm back. Um, lucky you guys. So, uh, we're getting near the end here, and and we're gonna, um, we, we, for those of you who have been coming in and out and uh, didn't hear this beginning, we are going to have time for some panel discussion, and we're getting very close to that. Um, my job is to try to do justice to um, this article that looked at some of the uh, challenges and opportunities, and it was written by Nadine Foster, who did the, the bulk of this work and did a very nice job. Um, it was uh, well-received in, uh, in the early stages and, and reviewed very well and I think it has the potential to be thought provoking and uh, Tony Delito also contributed to the to the article so that's going to be my my job is to try to bring some of these things up and, and um, obviously this is near the end so these might be things that are people are thinking about for the forum too and then Chris is going to do the final conclusion I think I'll be back one more time to to have you throw tomatoes at me So what they did in this article was they looked at the differences between entry level education and the current therapist and the challenges and the opportunities and um, they're not again mutually exclusive, they're obviously related to one another but I think there are some aspects that um, clearly overlap but there's also some other issues that, um, that can be considered separately. Uh, the, uh, not surprisingly, uh, based on what we talked about earlier, is just this, the challenge um, of the, the focus of entry-level training. Uh, the, there's this kind of contrast now that the realization that musculoskeletal pain, especially low back pain, is probably best conceptualized with biopsychosocial models, especially when you're incorporating disability and the, the experience of pain. Uh, but the entry-level training is, has a very hemf- heavy emphasis on biomedical model- models and an emphasis on biomechanical principles. And, you know, classically therapists are not introduced to the fear avoidance model or some of those other psychological models, at least not uniformly. There's not a, uh, a, a curricular check for that. And this is not unique to the states, another nice aspect of this article and this issue was the uh, the attempt to get an international perspective. And um, the teaching of pain, in, in general, it's viewed to be inadequate for professions. Um, again, when you think even more globally, one of the main reasons for folks to seek pain or to seek healthcare care treatment is for pain, and the folks who are accessed most frequently are primary care physicians, and when you look at the amount of specific pain education those folks have, it's, it's not a good match uh, for the dealing of that. Um, In this survey in the UK, their conclusion um, was inadequate preparation for professional practice. Um, Keep in mind that was sponsored by the International Association for the Study of Pain. Um, But I think when you see when they focused in on the physical therapist, we did actually receive the highest amount, but there was extreme variability in that 5 to 158 contact hours in entry-level curriculum. And um, it's not often taught integrated it 's often taught in a piecemeal so it 's not taught um, um, like we 're kind of talking to you about it today it 's in conjunction with an intervention or in in response to an intervention um, in the United States i had the uh, one of the things um, Nadine asked me to do was look at the normative model, which um, for someone looking working in academics, I am shamefully going to admit it was the first time I looked at the normative model um, in detail, so um, I looked at it and pain. Is not in there all that much Um, and it was only mentioned in the foundational science section and it was only mentioned in response to physical agents which um, again if you're studying pain uh, that's a little discouraging because we know that there's not a huge treatment effect for physical agents on pain directly that you can get similar effects from placebo treatment. So it's not even situated well to reflect the science. Um, And then, of course, there's a clinical science section um, to the normative model, and pain is not mentioned in that part, uh, which is, to me, not acceptable given the clinical ramifications of, of pain. Uh, There is then, um, and this is not unique to pain, but I think again when we start looking at this, there is this lack of cohesion with clinical education that everybody seems to be interested in um, recently. So if you happen to have been introduced to this biopsychosocial approach, there's a very good chance that the clinical education component will not reinforce that. And we do know that the clinical education component is influential on practice patterns. So even if you're exposed to this information, uh, there's a good chance, um, as an entry-level student, you will not have it reinforced. And chances are the, the, the clinical part is going to outweigh the didactic part um, based on past experiences the uh, until recently the, the it was i always found this interesting as a um, as a student that there was always recognition that psychosocial factors were important to physical therapy and then it was kind of brushed away when 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 we were taught so there, there has been adequate attention to this in our literature, and um, we don't typically know how to implement current best evidence recommendations for psychosocial factors. Um, but I do think there are certain aspects of our practice where the psychosocial stuff has been well-defined, and pain is certainly one of them. Even though it is still not crystal clear, um, we can talk about specific psychosocial factors, and we can talk about the evidence that's associated with them. We don't have to talk about the broad influence of psychosocial factors, um, and, and this is uh, not at all surprising with continuing education because it's it's modeled after the entry level education that it's there's biomedical biomechanical orientation, um, and it will re, it's reinforced that in continuing education. And there are very few uh, options based on psychosocial models of intervention. Um, Again, no systematic way to look at this, but when you look at continuing education offerings, there are not a lot of um, people going around the country and and teaching graded exercise and graded exposure and educational interventions um, based on these models. This was an interesting one that I really hadn't thought of, and I'm I'm glad uh, Nadine brought this up. Just uh, the, because we talk a lot about patient um, expectations of outcome, uh, but there is an expectation of what our profession is defined as. um, And uh, of course, our APTA has gone a long ways to reinforcing um, certain aspects of that, of the hands on treatment part of that, and that's an important component. Um, But it may lead to this idea that um, part of that hands on approach. I think is very beneficial, the therapeutic part, but there's this other part that that hands-on approach is identifying exactly what is wrong in the back. And I think if that is the expectation of the person seeking healthcare, there is this potential for the person to practice the way that the expectation is. So this is a little different than the patient expectation of a poor outcome, this is, you know, I'm going to PT because they're going to find out what is wrong with me um, by manual identification. Um, And again, I'm not suggesting we change uh, to a hands-off treatment approach, um, but I'm saying that that hands-on, I think, is, is related to the treatment and not as much as that identifying exactly what is wrong. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting point that was brought up in the article. And then that has been discussed, um, even though we have a broad idea about these, we as researchers especially need to do a better job about identifying the ones that the focus on. And there is also um, a distinction I think that needs to be made. A lot of the stuff that we have talked about today, we focus on it because it is modifiable. There are certainly psychosocial factors that influence um, patients' presentation in the clinic um, that are relevant, but that are not Modifiable, at least by us, and you know, unemployment would be a classic example. Yes, that is a psychosocial factor. Yes, that has influence, but it's not a treatment target. It's not an assessment target. Um, we're focusing on modifiable. So, f- for people to focus on the unmodifiable, it might be wasted wasted time. And then, of course, um, reimbursement does not. Um, value these types of um, approaches currently as delivered by a physical therapist uh, and, and this is something that um, will continue to be a big barrier unless there's some system changes uh, involved here but um, you know there's no coding um, and there's not a way to routinely track the downstream savings that you might be getting if your goal is to prevent recurrence and prevent chronicity um, that's really a downstream Um, effect and really we're geared at measuring those outcomes when the treatment episode ends and our reimbursement and things are based on that but these systems are getting more sophisticated and and, and Julie certainly has a lot of experience in a a sophisticated system and um, there may be some ways to work on this um, implementing of the downstream savings and it might be an incentive to use some of these um, for the payers so um, Chris and I, with the help of some of our colleagues, uh, Mark Bishop helped out with this, and one of my doctoral students, in, in putting you know kind of a, a picture that might help. And in, in this way, this is really, I think, how, uh, how at least therapists are trained, and, and certainly how some of them pra- practice with low back pain, that there is this acknowledgement that there's overlap between these two, but the practice is really kind of at either end, that there's a standard practice where you're primarily... Uh, focused on physical factors. And then there becomes a point in the episode where it's so heavily involved with psychological that it's out of our realm of practice and there's a referral to mental health that is indicated. And I think we're pretty good at operating in these extremes. Um, But as the problem with a lot of approaches, um, there is this middle you have to deal with. And if we had frequencies of patient reporting on here, um, which we could have made up hypothetically, I would guess the bulk of our patients are in the middle where there's a combination of physical and psychological. So this is kind of conceptually um, where we view the the current state, that it's kind of this two ends of a spectrum, and in the middle may not be being addressed adequately. So the opportunities then, and not surprisingly, are directly linked to the challenges, and just the the opportunities are to emphasize biopsychosocial models, Um, I like this idea of benchmarking standards in pain education. Uh, There are some ways to do that. Uh, I think physical therapists should have a, should be the most known, you know, have the highest level of competence in pain education and knowing what's going on with pain because it's such a common reason to seek health care. And then the magic uh, again not just for this but this cohesion so I think this is something that can piggyback on with other things. Um, of course the evidence and, and, and I think the other thing to point out is this really is an evidence driven movement from my perspective. Um, a lot of data support this um, but also looking at implementation studies and, and, and effectiveness studies in, in, along with trials um, enhanced role of physical therapists in educating patients and the public on this and then we talked about the identifying key factors and changes to reimbursement system, so some specific examples just to show you because um, it 's a little overwhelming when you start thinking about these, but there are some models to look at uh, not too long ago um, you know there was a the manual therapy folks noticed that there was the a similar situation. There's some pretty good evidence to support the use of spinal manipulation and I'm, quite frankly, a lot of our curriculum entry level, they weren't ready to address that. Um, and they got together some task force, um, working with the APTA and the American Academy and, and decided to address that head on and had a um, conference, published the proceedings, made it very clear what the expectations were for entry-level use of manual therapy, provided the tools for um, programs that were interested, um, also indirectly provided information to the crediting body. I think that's a great model to consider because it, I think it has been an effective way to, to uh, implement this change. The other thing is we don't have to, we don't have to pluck these out of thin air. We don't have to look at these. There are some professional organizations that study pain specifically. And the timing of this is quite interesting. As I'm working on this um, special issue with Chris Main, um, I get a call from Kathleen Sluka and Paul Watson who are physical therapists active in um, pain research. And they're revisiting the pain curriculum. The International Association for the Study of Pain has a pain curriculum for physical therapists again something else I was completely unaware of uh, before starting this so they're revisiting that and these are folks with pain interests working specifically on these these curricula are going to be curriculum for PT is going to be readily available and um, it's it's going to be up to date this could be a great thing to consider benchmarking and uh, the pain education programs could use these um, and again, this could be used to help influence uh, people who are um, more involved with uh, curricular decisions and how to incorporate pain education into our normative model. And I'll just give you an example of what the curriculum would look like. This would be the, the major topics, the nature, pain across the lifespan, assessment, measurement, measurement, management, common pain problems, and service delivery. So you could envision this being implemented in um, one class, you could see it put in different parts of classes. You could see continuing education based on this. And just to give you an example, I'm working on the assessment and measurement part, and this would be one um, learning objective. So, you know, physical therapists should demonstrate the ability to, and in this objective, the key here is the multi-dimensional nature and clearly identifying the domains. We're very good at measuring the sensory aspect of pain and then not as good as as the other parts. Um, But even just making folks aware that pain is multidimensional and there are different ways to measure the different dimensions. It isn't always the zero to 10. A lot of times it is the zero to 10 scale, um, but there are other ways to get at it. And we've spent a lot of time today talking about the affective and cognitive parts of of, uh, the pain experience. I think another um, example is, uh, of, of opportunities is the, the United Kingdom guidelines do recommend intensive cognitive behavioral uh, therapy for failed first line low back treatments. Um, as they are trained right now, PTs are not able to offer this. So um, there is a need to look at training paradigms to get physical therapists. If the evidence is moving this way, and people are going to want to reinforce this. Here's a health system that wants to reinforce this, um, but PTs are unable to meet that. There's just not enough um, knowledge out there. So we need to have training paradigms ready to do that. And then the other is there are some public health initiatives for evidence-based psychosocial education. The, the 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 uh, best known one is the one in Australia but um, there's another attempt at working back Scotland um, that's being revitalized and this is just providing information on low back pain and it was very effective in Australia Um, they've had some trouble reproducing it at other parts of the world but they still value that that information Um, again when we look at the researcher part of this I think we need to address some of that overlap that Julie was talking about and, and really hone these down and if, if the, 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 the origin of this was one questionnaire per construct, if it looks like that's going to be too bulky and you don't gain a lot of information, then you are going to see those screening tools that have one question per construct and give you an idea of what their psychological distress is, you're going to see those being uh, adopted. And that subgrouping hopefully will follow right from that. And I think, you know, one of the things in interacting with psychologists is I think we need to get a better idea where where we can and should deliver cognitive behavioral therapy by physical therapists and where we need to pass the baton. Um, it, it's a little easier when we interact with other healthcare professionals because um, of what our practice act is. There are certain tests and diagnostic procedures that we can't do and that's very easy threshold to refer. It's a little little muddier water that we're working on here. So they've, uh, as part of the article, have this nice figure um, that we'll reinforce later with kind of the overall figure. Uh, But there is a level of relatively easy that should really be part of all PT practice. And these are things some people do probably quite well normally. There are some things there that you can measure and and see. Then there's the additional training component, which um, would be what we would probably call traditional cognitive behavioral therapy and then there's the onward uh, referral part which is uh, the psychopathology or the orange flags so that we we really are ill-equipped uh, to handle and then um, really getting uh, the payers there's also a lot of interest now and in, in our research has been very good at Identifying treatment effects and things like that, our research has not been as good informing policy, and just being aware of that and, and being kind of ahead of the game and, and being well prepared to have this psychological uh, approaches be have enough method methodology to be able to inform the policy folks so that you do get some encouragement from your reimbursement to do this and that
3: in this. So now it's Chris's turn. Thank you, Steve. Well, we really are almost at the end now. Um, Steve and I are going to present some concluding observations really from what has been a couple of years' of work trying to put together this uh, uh, special issue, which uh, is in no sense an end point, but we hope it might be a starting point for some changes that we believe the evidence tells us uh, we should be uh, 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 looking at and incorporating into changed uh, clinical practice so one or two uh, reflections in summary we're suggesting psychologically informed practice is offered as a new approach to physical therapy positioned as a middle way between narrow focused standard physical therapy practice based on uh, biomedical principles and clinical approaches developed originally for the treatment of mental illness. Now, I know this is a little bit of a caricature but I think it's necessary to understand that we're talking about a shift uh, in how things are, uh, uh, seem to be working at the moment uh, and, and this is uh, how we try to integrate our ideas uh, with the flags construct where on the left hand side there we 'll get standard practice, the core philosophy addressing physical impairments based on biomedical concepts primary goal, reducing symptoms. Uh, on the right-hand side, we've got mental health practice, philosophy, I can't actually read it, uh, <laughs> identifying and treating mental illness with the primary goal of minimising the impact of psychological disorder on well-being and function. But of course, what we have been saying is we fig- fig- feel that most patients actually fit into the middle, where we're, the, the, the things we're looking at, uh, the philosophy is incorporating patients' beliefs, attitudes, and uh, emotional responses into management based on biopsychosocial models. And remember, bio is still in there. Primary goal, secondary, prevention of disability. And so what we're suggesting in, in the change to practice is that the blue and the yellow flags become incorporated into routine management. Psychological informed practice is characterised by routine and specific consideration of yellow and blue flags depending on the clinical setting for determining the risk of poor outcome and the potential for treatment modification. So we view this approach as fitting best within a a cognitive behavioural framework, noting that within the field of clinical health psychology there's been increasing interest uh, in the cognitive behavioural approach to a range of conditions. But we do want to distinguish this from mental health practice from which the cognitive behavioural approach was developed with its primary focus on psychopathology and significant psychiatric symptoms. We mentioned the black flags only briefly, uh, because these are not uh, appropriate objects uh, in terms of uh, an individual's clinical intervention, but we do need to understand the context and and Stephen's uh, important uh, comments on, on the need to perhaps reflect on system changes uh, at the training and implementation level, may well uh, be focused at a black flag level, you know, characterising the overall environment or context in which the clinician addresses the other addressing the other flags must operate. And uh, I think uh, in Bill Shaw's talk, this kind of link between blue and black flags is quite nicely illustrated but including the professional culture, healthcare policy, and insurance reimbursement. Uh, and you know, over the last 20 years, we've got uh, progressively better at identifying psychological factors and, and fitting them into models of pain and disability. We're only beginning where, uh, uh, to understand that social factors, um, cultural factors, subcultural factors, and so on, ethnic, familial, and economic factors, which of course can set boundaries uh, uh, around the, the range of possible efficacy of our interventions. About possibly also provide inventives for customising a little bit more psychologically informed physical therapy practice. Because they're not addressed uh, at the individual level. So, some, summary, some thoughts about goals for physical therapy. We're suggesting the shift in focus necessary is necessary to include routine consideration of psychological influences but it's a logical extension of an evidence-based secondary prevention approach within standard physical therapy practice. So the goal is not only to treat the individual for the current symptoms, as has been a traditional role of the physical therapist, but to stop the development of preventable pain-associated incapacity. And we're suggesting this may involve changes not only to clinical management at the level of the individual patient encounter, with increased consideration of psychosocial factors, but also in the manner and context of service design and delivery, incorporating appropriate incentives for the management of psychosocial factors. Four slides then for me before I hand over to Stephen. Key points. We're suggesting psychologically informed practice as a new clinical framework. Where psychological processes are an expected and normal and integral part of the musculoskeletal pain experience. There's nothing weird about them they affect everybody Psychologically informed practice is the opportunity we believe to improve clinical and occupational outcomes through appropriate consideration of relevant psychosocial factors but as both uh, Stephen and Julie said uh, we're really only at the beginning of understanding uh, some of the complexities but I think we're beginning to see the buildings in the fog Beliefs, emotions, and uh, behavioral responses have been long recognized as an important concomitant of low back and disability. And the literature to date is focused primarily on the role of patient beliefs, amongst which beliefs about the nature of pain, about fear, pain catastrophizing, and self-efficacy appear to be particularly important. And in psychologically informed practice, these beliefs are a primary focus of the physical therapist in the management of low back pain. We recognise that these are associated with emotional factors, such as anxiety, depression, and anger, and in turn, influence behavioural responses. We have made the point about distinguishing modifiable from non-modifiable psychosocial factors. as a critical part of the process. Each may have differing roles in patient management. For example, a non-modifiable psychological factor may be a powerful predictor of outcome, yet be inappropriate as a treatment target, and Julie Fritz's talk uh, very elegantly teased apart some of the uh, perspectives around this. My final slide. We must stress we're not advocating complete disregard of uh, biomedical approaches. We do not intend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we are mindful of the importance of red flags as indicators of the need for urgent specialist opinion. Nothing we've said changes that. But we recognise the further the important influence of relevant biomedical factors as an integral part of musculoskeletal management. But evidence suggests these factors should no longer play a primary role in the management of most cases of low back pain. Instead, broader management models should be used to be consistent with current practice guidelines. Stephen. All right. And then just to
5: follow up on some of the comments, and then we'll take uh, questions. And please remember to use the the microphones. Um, um, that you know, I think one of the things that is really interesting is is if if and how these will be incorporated into the physical therapy training in, in entry level and continuing education. Um, and it, it will require modification. And, and I like Chris's point in the very beginning. For those of you who've been here from. Uh, tip to tail. Uh, this is evolutionary to us. It's not revolutionary and I, I really think this is an evolution. Um, these are not things that just popped up uh, a year ago. Um, this has been going on from a very long time. So I think a modification is the, uh, the appropriate uh, term for that. Uh, my um, you know specific call is I I really think it may be time to look at the normative model from this perspective Um, there may be some other factors not just related to pain but pain especially was just I mean a a really eye opening experience for me um, to go digging around there and looking for that word and not not seeing it um, as much as it really should and not seeing the word pain in the foundational sciences with neuroscience and neuroplasticity um, was, was shocking to me not seeing pain with psychology was shocking to me. Psychology was listed, and it was more to do with the emotional reaction to like failure in sports and things like that and, and to not see the psychological component in pain was was um, you know again just shocking of course i 'm biased, but um, it was just it was very noticeable to me so I think, uh, again, we we realize, too, that this is this is going to be a change in training paradigms. There is a little bit of debate over what is CBT, who should be delivering it, and how it should be delivered. It needs to be standardized. I think those are things that we, we have, actually, some very good uh, collaborations with uh, folks, psychologists, and I think we can do that. Um, we can work with the psychologists and get programs that they're comfortable with. They've done this as part of trials um, that... Physical therapists deliver, and um, uh, can be effective of that. And again, I I've, um, uh, this idea of just being avail- uh, open to some of these newer models of pain perception. We all learn the gate model of pain as our um, understanding of pain perception and the gate model is extremely influential obviously and it's a great model and and, and there's debates over whether it's been applied correctly or not applied but the end result of that model was really pain was viewed as reflexive and and I know that wasn't how the model was conceptualized. I know there was a descending component of the gate theory but when it was taught, when it was applied it became a very reflexive experience and a peripheral experience and and, um, and that was how most of us were influenced with that. And, and I think we just need to be open to these these newer models. And I think we need to use models. You need to say, what model are you in? If you're in a self-efficacy model, then you may not need to measure as many constructs as if you're in a fear avoidance model. And that's helpful because it is so confusing with all the different ones. And when you try to lump them together, it is confusing. But when you focus on one particular one, it becomes a little, little more uh, palatable. Um, and I think the other thing uh, that we've spent a little bit about is is um, this idea of behavior change and and is is if that is the target how do we know it happens and and how do we know that our our information can um, can lead to that um, and and how do we reinforce the behavior change and not just the beliefs change and that's that's going to be a huge a huge challenge uh, this is just I think reinforcing this idea that um, there is when we say secondary prevention that is a public health term and generally public health is geared towards um, groups of people not individuals and PTs will um, treat individuals but it is this idea of using some of these pr- public health principles when you're interacting with an individual patient and again we're, we're really talking about preventing that um, chronic pain development. Uh, but these interactions aren't really well known. The public health folks have their methodologies, have their approaches, and they're great um, at dealing with large groups of people. Some of those lessons will be applicable to the individual, but we'll have to design some of these on our own. We'll have to work with some of those. But um, I think these public health approaches, there's definitely emerging a blending of public health and health professions across the board. And um, I think we're just going to see more of that. And again, the optimal screening methods, the clinical utility part of this, we do not, the last thing we need is a bunch of um, psychologists developing a bunch more theoretical models and a bunch more questionnaires um, and regression models. Uh, We really need to look at the applied part of this and look at optimal screening methods. And we need to follow models like they've done in Chris's group um, with the StartBack screening tool and matched treatment. And they'll be um, hopefully publishing their clinical trial results soon on this. And that will be a, a very nice model of a, a clinically applicable screening tool, some matched treatment, and we'll get an idea of the efficacy of that approach in the United Kingdom. Um, and then we need to be open to adapting those methods. Um, and I think this is yes near the end here just we know people have been dealing with and really that evolution of this is to be more specific to get away from the uh, unsystematic approaches and again just to reinforce anecdotally when we work with therapists um, with this it it is received well Um, it, it, it it takes a little while to change that approach, um, but it is not met with uh, continued continued resistance. And then this slide is just talking about the, the, the continued need to consider the systems that you're in. So I would like to ra- wrap up by thanking the authors of the series, I'd, especially uh, Julie and Bill for taking extra time to coming here. Um, All the authors put in a lot of time, but Julie and Bill made the extra effort to help us uh, kick off the issue. The reviewers, who we can't tell you who they are, but just now, because I don't have them all memorized, but they will be recognized, provided some fantastic uh, feedback. Um, Becky and Dan were very supportive throughout the way. And I just want to add personal thanks for working with Chris Main. It's been a, my pleasure to get to know one of the, the, the big names in the field personally and have a lot of fun and uh, learning a lot about this. So it's been a lot of, uh, a great experience for me. And that is it. That is it. So we'd like to take some questions, and we'd like to thank you for coming to the symposium. And hopefully you'll look forward to uh, taking a look at the, the special issue in, in May. You want me to stay here? Do you want to put both?
7: Could like?
6: Thank you all for a very comprehensive presentation. I have two quick questions, and for anyone. Uh, you started out talking about the brain early on, and I wonder about your comments on the validity of the model on the acute-to-care transition that talks
1: about neuroimmunological changes and the role of glial cells and actual physical changes within the brain and how the brain responds to pain in that transition.
6: Is that still a valid model of thinking about the difference between acute and chronic pain? And the second quick question is, if you comment on the prevalence and you need to screen for full-blown... Psychopathology in these patients, on the order of personality disorders, psychophysiological pain disorders, and and how uh, they need to recognize them as as people that do need to get out of the
5: system very quickly if you're going to have any sense of progress. Thank you. Can you okay? Thanks. And um, I'll I'll address the the first one, and then I'll pass the microphone to Chris for the second one, um, and and I'll. I think I can address the first one. I think essentially was asking uh, about um, synaptic cellular changes in, in the brain in, in response to long-standing pain. And, and I think um, what is clear from the animal research is there there is potential for uh, functional and uh, changes in the nervous system in response to chronic pain. And the value of those animal models is you can measure those directly. Um, you can sacrifice the animals, you can do the necessary staining to identify those things. Um, So some of those lessons that we've learned in the nervous system, people are fairly confident that they're applicable um, in the humans. We do not have that histological evidence yet. Um, You can get that brain activation information from functional imaging, um, but we don't know. uh, It's not as precise, I guess, as you know, actually being able to do the histology. Uh, So I think it's just how comfortable you are with translating that work. Um, And there are different stages in those, and I think what we're talking about is identifying those folks, if we're using a basic animal model, where those synaptic changes have not been structural, and they can still reverse some of the pathways so that the pain is modifiable. Because the bad news is that looking at some of that basic work is, Um, Most of our intervention strategies probably aren't enough to reverse those pathways once those functional structural changes have come, because it's change in the way the proteins are expressed, change in the way you know an actual structural change. And um, so, hopefully, that was close enough. If not, we can talk a little bit afterwards. And I'm going to pass the mic to Chris about the psychopathology.
3: Okay, uh, thank you for your question. Um, It's an important question about uh, psychopathology, about personality disorder and so forth. And of course in different systems of healthcare there will be different mechanisms for dealing with this. I think uh, in the US with a fee-for-service basis it's particularly vulnerable to uh, people not having been screened out in terms of complete unsuitability for treatment. But I think there's two uh, concepts to bear in mind. The first is I tried to draw the distinction between normal psychological process and psychopathology. And additionally, what's happened, anything with a psychological sniff to it, has meant that the physical therapists have run away from the patient or thrown them out of the clinic and I've really been trying to emphasize that I think we've done something of a disservice to our patients uh, in not looking at their normal psychological processes. So I think every clinic has to uh, have its way of dealing with uh, drug abusers, addicts, personality disordered people, uh, uh, people that report uh, uh, sexual abuse. Uh, So every clinician does have to have a way of passing these people on and deciding whether or not they're going to take them on board. But this training is not about managing these sorts of people. There is specialist expertise, um, and and we we definitely recommend um, that that, that people know about that. But um, certainly in our training programs, this issue has come a lot in particular. Um, You know, if a patient starts to get weepy, you know, is it a clinical depression of the sort that somebody else needs to see? And in fact... Um, We found that um, in a big trial that's of 800 patients that we're about to report on, there was a very, very small number. Um, You know, uh, they're as uncommon as red flags, people that actually need to be triaged out of the system. Um, So it's an appropriate concern, but I don't think it should be an overwhelming concern. I think it should be contextualized. And by and large, unless you've got very, very clear indications that somebody's just manifestly unsuitable for treatment, then uh, there should be an attempt to grapple with some of the normal psychological processes. Uh, does anyone else want to comment on that? Bill. No, I, I think... I'll to turn it on. Can you hear me?
6: No. Can you hear me now? All right. I, I think the, the, um, the issue that uh, to, be cons- to, to think about along those lines is to, to try not to stigmatize somebody and to try not to accept the notion that their pain problem is simply a manifestation of a psychiatric disorder, which we, we tend to sort of do that sometimes. So the idea that if somebody has a really horrific psychiatric history, to think that they're not so still helpable... in the the context of low back pain is is probably a a bad way to go. So even though people come to you with all sorts of different problems, if somebody says they have arthritis, you don't automatically send them to a rheumatologist either. So I think it doesn't necessarily, because somebody has a psychiatric history, doesn't negate your treatment.
3: We'll go right back. Okay, we'll go to the front.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Megan Brooks. I'm a second-year DPT student at Boston University. I was wondering if in the new issue you gave any recommendations on how to grade exercise or grade exposure for patients considering psychosocial factors of their low back pain?
5: Uh, what we did in the issue is we gave broad um, recommendations, but there's a, there's a whole host of references um, for both more in-depth conceptual work in that area and also trials that have fairly trans, you know, transparent methods so that you can look into specific ways of doing it. Because everyone does it a little bit differently. Um, in the, the group from the Netherlands, their exposure is not typically delivered by physical therapists. It's delivered by psychologists. In the studies that I've done, it's the complete opposite. We deliver, ex- I train the therapist to deliver exposure. So you just kind of have to look into each of those and, and, and look at them. It's... Um, you know we we had a certain idea, and, and really well, that would have been a topic of one paper almost to get into those issues and I think we just wanted to make it more of a um, here are the potentials, and here 's some good information that you can go to really dig into it if you want to so the references are probably more directly what you're what you 're interested in, but um, there is some detail, but not enough that you could you could um, you know start doing it right away. But the key is to understand with exposure, you need to measure the fear specifically in a different, in in a way um, that is different than most questionnaires are. Because in those questionnaires, they're talking about general fears, not specific fears. And the general fears sometimes are quite different than the specific fears. Did you want to say
7: anything? Uh, Maybe this is more for you and Julie. and I'm gonna take this for more of a, a less scientific, more clinical, practical approach. Um, isn't it interesting that behavior and pain is probably the majority of what we treat, and yet it's not in our normative model at the detail <laughs> that you talk about? So I, I think this is great that you're bringing this up and probably is very valuable to us as clinicians. Um, you know, research outcomes, research, research measures give us good sort of uh, descriptions in terms of how we might approach patients and look at looking at diagnosis and prognosis and how we choose our interventions. But uh, those of us that have sort of transferred over into EMR these patients are very difficult to document and to put the measures in. It's great. You can get an oswestry in there. You can do all these kinds of other measures, and they go in very nicely. But the real challenge is in the descriptors and, and providing good data, I guess, for you people in terms of where your research goes. And, you know, I think what really help us as clinicians is that, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm not preaching to the choir or maybe it's just me, I don't know, but these are very difficult patients to do adequate defensible and outcome-oriented documentation, particularly when we start looking at severity and complexity model because these really add a lot of time and different variables in terms of how we might want to charge for this kind of service. And yet we see a lot of these patients. So I'm just asking maybe as we go along and you guys develop more research, that we bring that into the EMR domain so that we as clinicians can give you better data and also, so we can better get better outcomes in ter- terms of how what we're doing. I don't know if that makes sense. It's a real challenge, I think, from, from my perspective, in terms of um, doing good, good defensible we'll handoff documentation to another clinician so they understand these levels of variables, and also in terms of how we might document in terms of the outcomes.
4: Yeah, I, I guess I can say a couple things um, in response to that. I, you know, I, the, the issue of the value of the EMR from a researcher's perspective is is a, it, it, there's the good and the bad. Um, but one of the things that... Um, that I've found exciting about working with our system, at least at in Intermountain, is the ability to leverage the information from the EMR relative to um, some of these comorbidities with, um, in and be able to capture that information in a larger sense. So, um, you know, that allows us to have a repository of information to create, um, uh, at least to be able to bring into our physical therapy outcomes database information on comorbid conditions that, that are documented in the EMR. Now, I think you're um, bringing up an excellent point of, do they show up there? Because we know they show up in our patients, but but are they identified and in some way um, captured electronically so that we can account for that as we look at the effectiveness of our care? Is that kind of getting at what you're talking about?
7: Well, even more importantly to, at least from from a clinical practical perspective, in order to. to tease out that data, not just from the patient, but get it into the documentation system in a way that is effective and efficient. Um, these, these, there is more time, at least from my perspective, spent on typing long sentences and paragraphs because that kind of information isn't in a it isn't in an adequate drop-down menu to expedite the process. And as much as I would, my drivers would be not even to deal with EMR. But, but the point is, we do have to deal with it. And you know, I look, to, I look at two things. I look at, at, at sort of a, a clinical model, and I look at a research model. And it's our responsibility to give good data back to ter- in terms of how we define and get our outcomes for reimbursement or otherwise, in terms of efficacy. Yeah. So right now, the real challenge that I see is, is that we're getting great information about behavioral science out here and how it's implemented in the clinic but the people that are designing the documentation software are not getting that information, and it makes it very challenging for us to provide that. So I was saying that you seem to have some really good ways of teasing that data out, and I'm saying, how can we get that into the system?
4: Yeah, and, and that's a challenge that's not unique to this domain in the sense of um, the, the amount of information that we'd like to have for research and clinical purposes and, and making it in a user friendly format where uh, it's, it's, and it's not only an electronics issue, it's also uh, just a, uh, a, a, an issue of clinical practice and how busy people are and, and you know, 30 item questionnaires just don't fly.
5: The only thing I'll briefly add is I, I don't have as much experience directly working with these systems, but um, I have worked a little bit with the photo folks, and I know we probably just need to develop a behavioral module. So if the patient is appropriate, you click on it and it has a bunch of check marks that you that you hit on. You know, that for some of these commonly used descriptors, you still might not be able to do exactly. As detailed, but we could develop, you know, a behavioral module. And, and I, I know in photo there's a pain module because I've talked to Dennis about it, and it's it's good, but it's not it's not great. And and you know, so you could have that option in these systems. So then you're not burdened to do it for everyone; it just kind of pops up.
7: Well, let me say that you're lucky you don't have to deal with EMR that much. And, <laughs> but, the, but the more important point is that that, um, you know, we, we want to get the data. EMR is really set up well for documentation of billing, and that's only one part of it. The other part is defensible documentation, but more importantly, to give people like yourselves who are cl- doing the research clinical data, and that's really what I'm getting to, is how can we get that data in there to make it so that you guys can get us better.
5: Right, well, we need to develop the modules. We need to get those, you know, those things, because, and then hopefully it can be implemented with the documentation and the billing. We'll go on to the next.
8: Hi. Great presentation. Thank you. Thanks. My quick question. Um, if you are familiar, what's your opinion about the job done and published by John Sarner, medical doctor and professor at New York University Medical Center? And I'm talking about his uh, theory uh, that this uh, idiopathic Back pain is caused primarily by um, tension myositis syndrome, which is part of the psychosomatic disorders. That's in case if you are familiar with that.
5: Yeah, I don't know that I'm familiar with that. I didn't catch the question. Okay, can you can you repeat the? Yeah, this microphone's working too, I think.
8: No, I can come closer. Are you familiar with the Germ Sarnos uh, published? Uh, work. That's a professor from New York University.
5: Not off the top uh, of my head. <laughs> yeah,
8: uh, it's very familiar to what we, we talked here today. So I was thinking that you are aware of that. But in case if you are not, that's irrelevant question.
1: Does, okay. Thank you. Uh, excellent presentation. Um, uh, just a question about uh, the. The, where you, where you envisioned um, what kind of questionnaire should be administered uh, by by a busy clinician in, in a clinic with typical patient with low back pain do you envision the start uh, screening questionnaire uh, being adequate enough to, to capture the needed yellow flags do we do we think that maybe that uh, we need to do that in addition to uh, the, the the fabq and and the pain catastrophizing scale or how, how many is enough and 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 when do we get to that point that, yeah, that's given us uh, the the tipping point of the data?
3: I think that's a good question, and it depends on the purpose of you using the questionnaire. The Starbuck tool was developed uh, very much as a simple screener. It's not really a clinical decision maker because it doesn't tell you anything about the particular nature uh, of the problem. It simply tells you there's a problem. And we have been developing kind of stem and leaf uh, approaches to interviewing that we've been training physical therapists in uh, as part of the, the trial that we'll be reporting on soon. Um, I think uh, what we found is that physical therapists uh, find it useful to have an additional screen. and what We've also been producing some slightly more sensitive to change measures using these contracts. So, for example, uh, if the patient looked initially as if there might be a problem with depressed mood or catastrophizing or fear... Um, that the physical therapist would uh, get a simple rating of that in a scale at the beginning of treatment. I think when one is talking about some of the more comp- uh, complicated questionnaires, I think these really are probably more of use uh, in tertiary care clinics. And I think what we've been trying to uh, uh, encourage um, is development of the. Um, Uh, the initial assessment of the patient um, the patient centred approach getting a clear understanding of the nature of these things Of course that's a very individual approach with an individual patient Uh, and while we recommend that for clinical management uh, in a research or evaluative context if you want to look at the case mix in your clinic or look at outcome you may want in parallel to collect some of the information. But I think these different measurement instruments are useful for different purposes so it depends very much uh, uh, on the type of clinic, the type of service you're offering. And to the extent also on the case mix, because we still don't know a lot about differences across different types of clinics uh, in the kind of statistics of how people cough up as simple, moderate, or highly complex uh, on these instruments.
4: I think I would just say the same thing in the sense that I, I think the real key question is what are you going to do with the information? What are you, what, and that's, you know, specific to the con text that you're collecting it in, and, and um, if, if you're not using that information for any particular purpose, then I'd say none. Um, but I think it's really a question of, you know, are you in kind of a situation where you're looking at almost a, a screening and triage kind of more primary care setup, or are you in a more tertiary kind of setting where you're looking at monitoring treatment and predicting outcomes? So I, I think it really has to be very much site-specific to what your needs are and how you're going to use the information.
1: So I guess the, the follow-up question then is, uh, are cutoffs for fear, I think, are kind of a midpoint still in the FABQ, uh, or, or uh, maybe a, a different cutoff on the, the Tampa scale, um, but is there a cutoff for catastrophizing, or, or are those two kind of blending together?
5: You know, the issue with the cutoff scores is is, um, there's two ways. A lot of them are based just on the median split, which is right around the middle. Um, And then there are some other folks who have looked at other methods. To the best of my knowledge, the the pain catastrophizing scale doesn't have a cutoff score, but the way it's been used in the prevention and disability program is, uh, they look at it in combination with the Tampa scale, and if you're above the median on both, you're considered at risk, and if you're in the seventy fifth percentile for either one of them, then you're considered at risk. So that's how it's been applied, um, but uh, the you know the the classic cutoff score approach um, hasn't been used for that one and interestingly neither from the Tampa and, and I think part of it is again conceptually psychologists do not like to Dichotomize things. Um, I've learned that too. Uh, because if the data is normally distributed, which it is, it's very hard to draw a cutoff line. And I've had some discussions with a colleague at work, Mike Robinson, and he feels very strongly that we should be looking at regression equation approaches. And um, I always think of the analogy for determining maximal heart rate. That's essentially a regression equation. We know what you, you know, there's a very simple way to do that. Uh, we don't just look at someone, you know, get their age and say you have a high heart rate or a low heart rate. Um, So I think we need to get some maybe a little more sophisticated approaches to determining risk and saying, you know, we think based on these three things, your Oswestry score will be between 30 and 40 in four weeks instead of, you know, this high or low thing. So I I think that's kind of where we're headed.
2: Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes. Is that better? Okay. I agree with my colleagues. An excellent presentation. So
5: Thank thank you. you.
2: Um, and I just was wondering if, if some of the research I'll go back and, and um, look at that you presented today as well as in the, the May issue do you have you looked at the belief systems of the practitioner the clinician um, and in that um, uh, saying that I would say not just the PTs we're talking to here today but our, our physicians and uh, their their belief systems about pain pain mechanisms where it's coming from I was personally happy not to see the word malingering um, on, on the uh, the slides here today. So that would be question number
5: one. And okay, um, I'm gonna repeat the question because we're gonna ask this guy to answer it and um, he, he's having a hard time hearing the microphone. Oh, sorry about that. So essentially the question is, um, we presented a lot of data on patient beliefs and has the, the therapist or the healthcare provider, had their beliefs been looked at as, in, in the role of this? So I'm gonna pass that to, to Chris May. <sighs>
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, um, there's a specific review, review article um, in clinical rheumatology-related research, uh, which I headed up along with Nadine Foster, which came out in March 2010, where we reviewed the evidence for these. Uh, the one part of our unit has been looking at the influence of therapists' beliefs, primarily uh, physical therapists and primary care practitioners, on their approach to treatment, Uh, there have been attempts to talk, uh, there's an instrument where you can uh, scale people in terms of the extent to which they're biomedical or psychosocial in the way they think, it's got some limitations as an instrument but um, we we certainly uh, have been investigating that um, and uh, of course it has good implications uh, for training Uh, and we certainly demonstrated in our training programs that we've shifted uh, therapists' beliefs Uh, um, as a consequence of our training. So uh, hopefully that answers your question.
2: Yes, yes it does. And then just a a lead up question, or a secondary question. Um, I probably don't use functional outcome questionnaires as much as I should. The FABQ we do use in our our clinic. But um, are there other clinical signs, symptoms, and data that we can start to look at. And I know the start um, uh, research that Julie brought up said that there was not a good correlation between the the, phys- the PT's uh, predictive value just with observation, clinical exam. But are there some nuggets that might have been found in there that start to lead us down a road of signs and symptoms a clinical exam that might point us in the right direction with these things?
4: Yeah, I, I'm not... Aware that there's been uh, research that's really validated, um, uh, for lack of a better word, more subjective impressions that the clinician draws and their accuracy in identifying the sorts of um, issues that we're talking about, and and that uh, I think the, the the small study that I brought up is is fairly typical of the literature in this area that. Um, Although I, I certainly know clinicians who intuitively get this, uh, it, 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 relying on that or generalizing that seems to be really dicey. So I, I, I think unfortunately it's, it's, it's not something that's easily picked up on from those kind of clues. Yeah.
5: Okay. And I'll just quickly add to that and then we'll have time for the last question there. Um, there we did a. I worked with a doctoral student, Darren Colley, who had an idea to look at that exactly. And and similar, Julie said the trend is he just had the therapist rate what their perceived fear was on a zero to ten or on a VAS, and then we looked at it in correlation with the FEBQ and it was it was not a very good correlation. So even just having the therapist, it was a, a step above just judgment. We were saying, okay, what is? Or he asked them, what is the fear level from zero to ten for this patient, and it wasn't correlated as well as we would have liked it to have been, because we were thinking, he was thinking of that as a shortcut kind of way. But um, again, Julie kind of brought up a good point. What is the gold standard then? But um, in comparison to these more psychometrically sound questionnaires, just that simple snapshot or thought of the therapist doesn't seem to capture the same information. So,
7: Hi. Uh, Thank you very much for the presentations. Uh, Let's say we identify somebody in the clinic uh, with a high uh, FABQ score. Um, Based on the best evidence we have so far, uh, which article would you recommend a clinician uh, to use in a clinic uh, to guide a clinician uh, to, uh, as far as the education piece, the graded uh, exercise piece, and even the uh, graded exposure piece?
5: Well, anything I've written, right? Is that the right to? Right? So, um, no, I think, first of all, um, when you really talk about best evidence, remember we're not talking about an individual article a lot of times. Uh, an individual article may be a great model or have a good program, but we're looking at com- compilation. And um, in a lot of ways, and, and we're not dodging this completely, there's not a lot, there's not, not enough studies that look at it the, the way that we're suggesting to, to say what the best evidence is. I think there are some good examples that were highlighted um, in the in the talk of trying to match that. But to say, you know, what is the best evidence right now, we're a little bit, um, and, and that's brought up in systematic reviews on this topic. There was a good one in PTJ on it. So then you're kind of left at looking at models um, that implemented it effectively, and I think it really is a decision of what you think you can translate into the clinics. I think. The brief education models, which have been used in primary care, um, it's a little noticeable that they haven't been translated as much into PT settings because they're easy, very easy to implement, um, and they do seem to show consistently a, a small treatment effect. So, you know, if you're looking for best evidence with systematic review, I think the brief education intervention might be one of the ways to go. The graded exercise and exposure approaches are. Um, uh, there's just not as much strong evidence, but a lot of them are looked at from that prognostic factor aspect where they 're not looking at the the uh, interaction with the level of the fear so they're they 're being targeted to people with high and low psychological distress, and the effects may get washed out but this you know this is being remedied somewhat in in a large trial that's um, being reported soon, and and we'll have some new data
3: to add to that evidence base. Okay, I think we're going to have to wind it up. Two lots of thanks to you all for coming and the opportunity to uh, present our work, and in particular, to my co-presenters. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.